Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Spilling the Truth. Today's episode is brought to you by Bluefish Design in Tempe, Arizona. Bluefish Design is a full-service marketing ad agency that can work with you on your logos, your branding, your interactive and digital media, your website development. They're a modern company. They're not trapped in the past. Look them up online, www.bluefish.com. That's B-L-U-F-I-S-H.com. And now for today's episode, we're welcomed by a very special guest, Sean Tevick. I knew Sean when he was the wine director for Cowboy Chow, Cashmere's, and Seesaw. And now he's working for Taub Selections, Thomas George, and Nobletree. So please, I uh, hope you enjoy today's episode, and thanks again for tuning in. some wine yeah <laughs> it's funny is most people don't know much about bordeaux blanc i suppose that's a fair shake well when it comes to white wines and i'm talking about the the american wine drinker there's two glasses for each of us groovy the so many of the american wine drinkers think white wine they think chardonnay or pinot grigio they don't really think of anything all the obscurities and I say that coming from experience because when I was 23 years old, I thought all white wine was Chardonnay. Sure. I remember drinking Sterling Sauvignon Blanc, and I thought it was, mentally, I thought it was Chardonnay because that's what it all was. Mm-hmm. And then, God, there was one white wine that I had one day. It was like a Gruner or something like that that just changed my mind on everything. I was like, oh my God, this isn't the white wine I've had before. <laughs> like, it, this, this, is, this is what white wine's supposed to taste like? Exactly. Well, I mean, white wine in the U.S. Actually, not even the U.S., but... It's a challenge to sell white wine to somebody more than it is to sell red wine, I think. I suppose that's fair, but even thinking about going out to eat somewhere, if you're going to have a Chardonnay at a restaurant, depending on the restaurant, though, nine times out of ten, it might not be the best thing you ever had. I mean, it's going to be like a huge, oaky, buttery bomb, most likely. Probably. Well, I think that you can talk a red wine drinker into trying anything. If... if I came to you, you're like, I love big reds. Awesome. Let's give you, I'm going to give you a blend of Cabernet, Merlot, Grenache, Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, blah, blah, blah. you're like, bring it. Exactly. A late, somebody comes in and dines in your restaurant and says, I like Chardonnay. And you're like, well, I got this blend of, uh-uh, she's gonna, not going to change her mind. She likes Chardonnay. Yeah. I think, I think white wine drinkers are often stuck in their bubble more than red wine drinkers. That's fair. I mean, <clears throat> I'm generalizing too. No, for sure. But... I think with white wine, then the biggest difference between like a, a kitchen sink red blend versus a kitchen sink white blend, half the time you're probably going to have some level of residual sugar in the white that you're not going to see in the red. And, you know, a Zin and Syrah cab blend isn't going to be too far off than, say, a Grenache Morved or something, as far as residual sugar and tannin level for the most part. True. There's so many iconic red blends that you know of out there. And I say iconic because it's stuff you, that the average person recognizes. You know, stuff like the prisoner. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to white wines, there's not too many iconic white blends. Maybe Conundrum would be the one that I could think of. Evolution's another one maybe in a way. That's, yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they've done well in the, the off-premise market. I forgot about that. Sokol Blosser, right? I it is, about that yeah. yeah. Which is, I think that's also another one that's a blend of like, Nine different white grapes, and it's got a bit of sweetness to it. Mm-hmm. A lot of a, res- a little bit of residual. 
I think I think I, like Mayomi Pino I heard has more white grape varieties in it than Pinot Noir. No, no, <laughs> no than, than the Evolution White Blend. Oh, okay. so like, like no joke. I mean, there's like a fair amount of Gewurz. I heard there Riesling, was some Riesling Gewurz yeah. to give that little bit of sweetness to make it all taste the same. <laughs> yeah. Well, like all grapes have sugar. You don't need Riesling to give it the sugar. No, you, know? you don't. <laughs> I've been on this crazy white wine phase for a while now. Like I've been drinking a lot of Sylvaners, mm-hmm. Kerners, for me, it's been the Brundlemeyer Gruner. Uh, Brundlemeyer Gruner mm-hmm. has been like my go-to, always in the house. I mean, I think for Christmas we drank six or seven bottles, like over the two or three days of Christmas. And oh, yeah. those are killer wines. They're they're approachable to everybody. You know, my mom drinks Behringer White Zinfandel. That's what she likes. That's mm-hmm. her style. She's not even a huge Riesling fan, but she loved that Brundlemeyer. Mm-hmm. It's funny you say that, only because the white wine that got me into drinking white wine was the um, Sans Liege white, and it was a blend, the uh, Cote to Coast. It was a uh, Rhone-style white, yeah. so mostly Viognier, mm-hmm. Grenache Blanc, Marsan Roussam. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I had a white wine that I really went, oh, I really like that. Yeah. And I really like the floral ones, the Viognier's, Tarantes, mm-hmm. Malvasia is one of my favorite whites. Mm-hmm. Um, a grape that does well in Arizona as well. Yeah, it's actually doing real nicely. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to mess around with some sparkling versions of it now, oh, cool. so we'll see how that works out. But... I, the only white blends I can think of is this Bordeaux mm-hmm. or Rhone style because everything else is all, you know, single varietal. Yeah. That, so yeah. it's mostly like a region thing. I mean, when well, it comes to white blends, what have you actually even really had in your life? Because, I mean, we've had together combined, you and I have probably drank 10,000 different wines in our life. Sure. Like minimum. Because being... Going to Vin Italy, going to Provine, mm-hmm. being a buyer, being mm-hmm. a... I mean, it, you try so many different things, but... Well, there is those like random mosh posh whites that, okay, this is this random Spanish village, and either there's more X's than there are A's or E's in the, in the names of the grapes or something like that. But no, you're right, there's not a, there's not a ton of white I'm trying blends. To, I'm trying to think of ones right now, even from Italy, and so many things are single varietal, mm-hmm. or they'll blend a little something extra in, like right. Suave, they'll blend in a little Trebbiano de Suave, or they'll blend right. in a little something else, but it's still Garganica. Exactly. You know, honestly, I think Arizona whites, I've seen a lot of blends in Arizona, though, because maybe, you know, the Malvasia isn't great on its own, but there's some random Viognier, and I mean, adjust the high tone. To the mid-tone and to the fruitiness, though. Um, California, other than Rhone white blends, really. Right. And then same, think same for me, too. Some of the white wines that exploded for me early on <clears throat> were white Rhone blends. I still love white Rhone. Marsan, Roussan, Viognier yeah. blends. So I'm... Uh, only because I'm thinking about, like, from a winemaker's point, mm-hmm. blending reds make all the sense in the world for what you're trying to make. You know, obviously, you're not really going to do a Pinot Noir blend with the exception of the mass-produced stuff. But, like, if you have a cab, you need more tannin structure to it, add some Petit Verdot. If you need to tail it back, add a Merlot. Like, you add things together to counteract something. What would you really do that with the white other than making a different flavor profile or bring up the acidity into it? Or maybe exactly. bring it down. Like, there's not much to do. No, and then the, on the same, like, production level... For, you know, fermenting whites, it, you know, a neutral environment is possible. You know, stainless steel or concrete, yeah. really ideal. Then for finishing touches, then maybe, you know, in barrel for some, for a wood component though, but keeping it as true and honest to what the variety is. Yeah. So is, you've done just about every side of the wine business. Have you actually made wine yourself? Mm-hmm. 
Yes, indeed. So a small label for a few vintages, uh, Noah and Cora. Um, actually, even before that, while I was still living in Arizona, uh, made some rosé in Central Coast, California. Um, a couple vintages of some pretty cool rosé where I was very attracted to the rosés that were being done in the Veneto and almost a, um, you know, Corvina-driven rosés where there was a tannin structure, there was acid, there wasn't a lot of residual sugar, but there's a fruitiness, though. And so trying to replicate that in Central Coast, that was like 07 vintage uh, or 07 harvest, um, 07 and 08, and then moving out to uh, California in 09 um, to start Thomas George. Later on, then starting Noble Tree a couple years later, and then all the fruit that we were either sourcing or having our vineyards farmed by, um, my buddy Ulysses Valdez, I was able to source some pretty awesome fruit from him and uh, make just one Pinot Noir a year, but that's all I needed to do is... <laughs> Pretty epic. Fruit How as much well. were you doing a year? Like <clears throat> just a couple, a couple barrels, a couple hundred cases. Okay. So uh, using punchins, uh, which is slightly larger than two standard barrels, U- utilizing that more over than um, than standard barrels because the surface surface to wine ratio is less. So you're getting less wood. Less oak. Yeah. yeah. Less oak on the on the actual juice. I'll tell you, like. You is there any part of the business you haven't done? I'm thinking about it because I mean, when I met you, you were a wine buyer mm-hmm. and you were buying wine from me, and yep. then you've gone and now you've been on the salesman side. So you've been you've worked as a wine salesman on the markets, dealing with mm-hmm. distributors and wholesalers. That's sure. Side of it. You've done the wine making side of it, mm-hmm. you've definitely done the wine drinking side of it for sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. there, there's so many people in my business that have never been in the winemaking side, have no idea how to even start. Or yeah. there's also people that are in my business that have never bought a bottle of wine in their life. Like, or I'm talking about commercially, like sure. been a wine buyer somewhere. Right, right. Well, with, I mean, I think one of the misconceptions of winemaking, and, and no offense no, to you as a winemaker. fine. <laughs> <clears throat> but, I mean, cavemen made wine. I mean, really, at the end of the day, it's sugar plus yeast plus temperature. Farming um, plays a huge part of what goes into the bottle. Um, obviously then a clean winery, clean facility, have, you know, taking care of your production is a huge part of it as well. The rocket science comes into how to sell a bottle. I mean, you could take some grapes and you could make something. Nobody's going to want to drink it necessarily, but you probably make something at your house. How to figure that on a mass scale to go try to sell it is incredibly challenging yeah you need those hype men to sell my product because you're right i mean honestly 80 percent of my work is done in the vineyard sure. i'm basically just like a doctor like i learned how to deliver the baby but i did none of the work making right. that baby right, right. <laughs> so i'm just bringing it into the world as a baby <laughs> and then therefore passing it off to somebody else to deal with that because i'm right. not <laughs> so yeah it's it's I've only been in the, I've had a little bit of wine buying because I was at r and originally it was supposed to be a high-end like wine bar before it turned into like a sports bar kind of a place. Sure. So we were bringing in a lot of stuff for the menus and that was kind of my first experience, you know, building a menu being like, okay, well, what do we put on here? And when right. they give you a budget and you're like, oh my God, I want all the $100, $200 bottles. You go, oh crap, but I got to sell Mayomi, The exactly. Prisoner. And that's like my bread and butter. It's like 80% of the sales at this point. Or any, tw- uh, we, what do we always use that crappy uh, champagne? <laughs> it's like a, it was a $3 <laughs> bottle of champagne that was just quick pop pour. Andre? 
Uh, no, Jay Roger. Jay Roger. And now it's like Williams or I don't know what it but it's like two bucks. Right. So now winemaking side is I'm glad that way it wasn't stressful. Andre. No offense to those at Andre. But <laughs> I mean I think Cook Cooks and Andres knows exactly where they're at. Yeah, for sure. The guy who controls the CO2 machine. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure the guy that cashes here. the guy who cashes the checks does not mind being Mr. Andre. No. Yeah, the yellowtail <laughs> guy doesn't mind being Mr. Yellowtail. Yeah. Yellowtail also supposedly the uh, highest mog count of any bottled product out there, matter other than grape, for any any really? wine, supposedly. Wow. Yeah. Is that because of possibly stuff like mega purple or concentrates? Do concentrates fall into that? I think it's... <clears throat> actually, I shouldn't say that this is specifically Yellowtail, but something at that mass scale, farming the land in a way where you're just sourcing fruit from many, many, many different places and driving over the land in giant tractors just getting grapes. Those those machine harvesting machines uh, for sure are going to grab grapes, but they're going to grab chunks of stem, obviously, pieces of the uh, of the actual plant, leaves, yeah, leaves. Um, rocks, bugs on it, yeah, yeah, dirt, foxes, mice, snakes. Um, Good point. And they're probably very large harvesting machines they're using, and they're just trying to get everything as quick as they can. Exactly. I've never been to Yellowtail, so I'm not saying that specifically that they're doing that, but on that large scale thing. And then, you know, not even on that mass scale, um, you know, not fermenting in barrel because that's very expensive. Um, fermenting in giant stainless steel tanks. <laughs> 20,000 gallons, three oh, stories exactly, tall. Exactly, exactly. And then adding in burnt sawdust yeah. into, into the tanks to give it a wood flavor, and then filtering out the sawdust, the skins, yeah, and the those rocks. chips and staves and yeah. all that other. It's funny you mentioned the thing about the animals because I, I never realized that when they go through those like commercialized, basically the machine that goes through and just whacks the, uh, the vines as you go along. There was a winery that we were talking about buying grapes from um, in their vineyard site. And they had a problem one time where they actually opened up the tank and there was a snake just floating. It got pushed its way. It was dead. It suffocated. But it was just going by and there was just a snake probably wrapped in the vine. It just ended up in the tank. And I'm like, oh, well. It wasn't, a hot, it wasn't a hot snake, was it? <laughs> nice. <laughs> Oof. That's bad. All right. So we should Love. probably, we should probably we should, on that note, we should probably introduce you. Somebody got fired on that one. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right, so uh, with us today is going to be Sean Tevick. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm still like, in my head, just still <laughs> laughing <laughs> about that. Sorry. <laughs> All right, so I remember uh, we. I'm glad did... we're starting off with poop jokes already. Of course. <laughs> it only took us 10 minutes to get into them, of course. There's one person listening going, What do they mean, a hot snake? <laughs> I can't believe you called the shit poop. <laughs> <laughs> it's the poop again. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of poop, why don't you introduce yourself? <laughs> My name is Sean Tevick. I'm happy to be here, too. So, Sean's one of the first people to ever buy wine for me in the wine business. Um, when I first started in the wine business, I became a rep. I was rolling around my little wheelie bag, trying to get people just to be like, be like, yeah, sure. And I remember thinking, I'm like... It was a good size wheelie bag. It was. I could, <laughs> I could, I could fit a, nine bottles of Shiraz in there. Because <laughs> that was what was in our portfolio, a lot of Shiraz. <laughs> yeah, and really expensive Barbera back then. It was like $30 Barbera or Gem Tree Shiraz. Yeah. We did have Peruso and a couple of other things. I'm trying to remember Easton was in our book. Oh, yeah, Easton. So I think you guys are buying some Easton from yeah, us. Yeah, Easton Zinfandel. Yep. 
And then they actually went through like a secondary fermentation in their bottles one oh, year really? vintage, and it turned into Pop Rocks. <laughs> it literally it was Pop Rocks. And then they said, "There's no problem with that wine. Just keep selling it." We're like, "No, we can't. Everyone's sending it back." And then we parted ways with Easton. Yeah, I I met them somewhere along the way after living in Arizona and moving to California. And uh, nice people though. <laughs> I God, I only dealt with them through email. Never actually met yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure they were hippies though. I mean, Amador County. Exactly. Yeah, uh, the odds are they exactly. probably grew more than just grapes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> just saying. Yeah. All right. So Ch- Sean is currently actually we were getting a lowdown right before we started recording as to what he's doing now because I know you're with Thomas George, mm-hmm. but you're now doing a little bit more than just Thomas George Estates. Yep. Um, well, where to begin? Um, <laughs> I start re- in the beginning. Exactly. <laughs> Born January 27th, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Coldest day on record. Governor said it was a sign. Anyone born on this day? Um, Minnesota, huh? Minnesota. You don't sound like you're from Oof, Minnesota. Uh, I don't know that people really do. Like, when you get out to, in the sticks, but like Minneapolis, I don't know anybody that talks like that, really. It's like most people from cities don't really have an accent with the exception of like Boston and New York. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I never realized I had an accent until I moved out to Arizona because everybody would call you me do? out. And I've lost most of it. But when I got here, every person I met would be like, you're from New York. I'm like, I just sound like normal. Like, I didn't even realize it. And then I started realizing it was on certain words. It was the Oz. Coffee, mall, hot dog, water. (laughs) Yeah. There was no difference between M-A-U-L and (laughs) M-A-L-L. I I got mauled at the mall. Like, (laughs) it's the same word to me. How do you say pillow? Pillow. How do you say milk? Milk. Milk. No, it's, it's milk. Milk. But yeah, it's the Oz. It's, yeah, yeah. it's the, the, the coffee and hot dog. So I can't get rid of it. I, I don't even know how to do the hot, hot dog. <laughs> it's just hot dog. Right. My hot dog eating contest trick is instead of using water, I dip my hot dog into coffee. Oh. This for when you were at Nathan's hot dog eating competition? Exactly. <laughs> I don't know how those guys do it. And it slides down the gullet better. It's crazy the guy who wins it's like 110 pounds, like soaking wet. Mm-hmm. Like the little Asian dude can eat more than like the giant football player. How do you yeah. just not throw all that back up? <laughs> That's what blows my I, mind. You probably do, right? How do you? And, and they talk about these guys training. They're like, he's been training for six weeks for this competition. Yeah. Right. <laughs> sodium level's got to be through the roof. It's, they're going to die at like 35. I've been training for six weeks for this podcast. <laughs> I, I've been training since I was 16 for this podcast. Right, exactly. <laughs> All uh, right. So you, what are you doing now? So I... <laughs> because I'm, there's a lot of people that actually probably really want to know. Like, Yeah. Because you, you were a semi-celebrity in this town for a bit. Working with Cowboy Chow, Cashmere's, Digestive, Seesaw. Yeah. When Seesaw got the James Beard Award, yeah. you, were, you were the wine director yeah. for them. Yeah. So, I mean, kind of a good amount of years, the, the restaurant that had the best wine list, you were running all of them. Yeah, having a lot of fun doing it, too. Um, it was a different town then, you know, 12 years ago. O- old people always say that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> back well, in the like, day. Back in my day. I was a young wine dude, and I'm not a young wine dude anymore. Yeah, you so. are. I mean, I feel good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, w- went to California um, to help start a winery called Thomas George. We purchased what was the old Davis Bynum winery, which is pretty cool. Renovated that property, um, turned it into about 10,000 case a year um, production, 100% estate, Russian River Valley Pinot and Chardonnay producing winery. Uh, my buddy and I started a second winery, Noble Tree, off of that, really as a means for cash flow. So the 
collapse that happened in in every side of every industry in this country in 08, 09, in 2010. Very challenging to start a winery. Yeah, near impossible. Actually says a lot about what you guys have done to actually be able to stay and... A lot, yeah. a lot of people did not come out of the recession healthy. Yeah, it was... Well, and also, you know, for Thomas George, our, na- our immediate next-door neighbor on one side of the road is William Selliams. Uh, two doors down the other way is Gary Farrell. Uh, the Rocchiolis are a little bit further that you can throw a baseball down the road that way. So, I mean, it's epic neighborhood for Pinot Noir, but for a winery that no one had ever heard of before, and, you know, getting the same yields that, that William Selliams is getting or Rocchioli... No one's going to pay a hundred dollars a bottle for that, that, for something they've never heard of before. So that was very challenging. So Noble Tree came out of that um, as a means for for cash flow. Um, Do you sell Noble Tree out of the winery at Thomas, Thomas George? George? You cannot buy it. Okay, I didn't know if consumer. they were associated or they no. were associated through through production only. Yeah, all all produced through you. Yeah, all produced there, but. Uh, but not sold. We'd looked at opening a tasting room just, uh, well, the year leading up to moving back to Arizona. Um, but Sonoma County, the small farm town government, local government that's there is making it very, very challenging for, uh, for anyone to open up a tasting room. Now there's some very loud vocal, really that's the minority of, of there some old time farmers that don't think the wine industry belongs there anymore. Do they just not want the traffic coming through? Is that yep. what it is? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they think it's going to be, you know, drunks all over the road, that sort of thing. And I mean, to some extent, that there's areas of Napa that are that way. There's areas of Paso that are that way. Um, there's could, areas of Tempe that are that way. Exactly. Exactly. So, it was a, yeah, it was a challenging thing trying to get that open, which never, never came to fruition. Um, but, yeah, still a big part of, of those two organizations. And... Uh, Moving back here, representing officially 99 wineries, mainly Italian and French, um, and uh, a little bit of Chilean, Argentinian wineries, and a tiny, tiny bit of Spanish and, and Portuguese, and then three domestic, Thomas George Noble Tree and a killer Napa property called Heritance. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. So... Thomas George is something that I've told a lot of people about, because when I went to the wine dinner at Cowboy Chow with you, mm-hmm. it was the, one of the Somme showdowns you did. Yeah, yeah. That's the first time I'd ever actually had the wines. And they blew me away. Right on. Because they're not readily found everywhere you go, because they're sure. such small production mm-hmm. wines. Like, yeah. you don't go to the average restaurant <laughs> up the street that's serving Mayomi, and you're going to find right. <laughs> Thomas George next to it. Or even in the retail shops, you don't see them all readily available around the nation yeah just because of the small production so they really blew me away in what you guys do i mean so it's been how many vintages have they done 2008 was the very first vintage but that was like 1500 cases and that almost doesn't really count as a vintage 2009 was officially the kickoff so how does that work then if you did 2008 did you still have David? Uh, was it Davis Bynum? Was that yeah. still your label until 2010? Then your 2008 vintage was out, or as of like your 2008 being Thomas George, you had to wait a while before you could obviously put that label out. It was some finished things and some um, some help that we were having in 09 purchased uh, purchased fruit, and yeah. purchased uh, juice and whatnot from uh, from 
a couple consultants that were helping us out early on, though. So that's why I say 2008 was technically, yeah, the first vintage, but not necessarily officially. 2009 was the start of some estate fruit. 2010 was almost all estate fruit, and then by 11 was 100% estate fruit. Yeah, which is pretty cool stuff. And yeah, with the focus of looking at, I mean, like you said, everything happens in the vineyard, um, and really focusing on the farming aspects of it with a, a real focus on, you know, the highest quality fruit that we could possibly grow. Um, and, and, you know, controlling yields, we're getting about one bottle of wine per vine per year. I mean, about a bottle and a half. And what's the so. average? Like, what's the average person getting in Sonoma? Like, it, it varies. So our vineyard manager, Ulysses Valdez, my buddy, his fruit in Sonoma County was the most expensive fruit you could buy from his main Ulysses Valdez vineyard. So that's on Paul Hobbs's labels, Costa Brown, Aubert, um, all the heavy hitters from Sonoma County. Um, what he was charging was per acre, and his goal was to get two tons per acre. And for high-quality wine, that, that's on par with, with what everybody's doing. Um, and that two tons per acre is a bottle and a half of wine per vine per year, you know, a couple bottles of wine at most. Um, <clears throat> what everybody else is doing, some people are doing that. Noble Tree, the, the whole different price point on that, we're getting probably a case and a half or two cases of wine per vine. Same farmer, um, doing things completely differently though. Uh, still hand farmed, but not twice, you know, the vine's getting touched individually twice in January. Uh, once in February, a couple times in March, a couple times in April, um, with Noble Tree or wines of that caliber, which is more, it's, you know, bottles there, screw cap, introductory price point. Um, a lot of people don't know what the goes into actually producing a bottle mm-hmm. of wine, like the costs. I mm-hmm. mean, they, people think, oh, you plant a vine, it grew grapes, I made a wine, it's $200. Well, did you have 12 clusters or did you have three clusters? Right. You know, I mean, there's a lot of little nuances that go into the cost of what actually... Was it hand-picked? Did you have a machine hitting yeah. it? And well, I was thinking about that too. I was listening to your guys' episode when you are kind of talking about Arizona wine also and the price point of Arizona wine. And it'd be nice if there was more of an intro or even a local's discount or something like that, which I agree. But at the same time, I think I know every almost every winery in Arizona for the most part. And what we don't have is a lower tiered winery necessarily. So everyone's sort of making the same quality as a St. Combe Cote de Rhone, you know, I mean, it's, it's, or, or, or higher, you know, so that's the, that's the lowest rung and that's a pretty high rung. So the farming cost involved, you know, to get a few bottles of wine per vine, plus what the glass bottle costs, what a what a court costs, to get it, the label approved by the federal government. Um, I also think in Arizona, a lot of the people, they're newer properties. And to buy a piece of property in 2007 sure, versus somebody who inherited a piece of property that their grandparents bought in 1923. Yeah. So some of these people up in, say, Sonoma or Napa or Central Coast, Paso Robles, Mm -hmm. they could produce a wine much cheaper, I think, than the people here in Arizona can. Because some of these people have a pretty expensive banknote. Very much so. Even though they're buying desert landscaping in Arizona. I mean, even then, at that point, you know, you can be 
you know, whoever you are in a winery in California. And if you want to make an introductory label, you can go buy your fruit from somebody else from some other part of the state and just make it really inexpensive. You can't really do that here. There's no massive fields of grapes. Like it's usually most of the guys making it out here. That's their property. And that's, yeah. and only they've got like nine, 10 acres and that's it. Yeah. Exactly. I'm telling you, coming from a salesman standpoint, it's one of the smartest things a winery can do is have an introductory label, mm-hmm. a, a gateway drug into their wine. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people might say, man, I've always heard I should try Barolo, but I don't want to go buy, drop $100 on a bottle right. of Barolo, and I don't even know if I'm going to like it. Whereas the Italians have done a great job of introducing the introductory labels versus Nebbiolo Longhe. Or, right. or if you want to have an Amarone, you go with the Valpolicella Rapasso. Or the, the Travaglini Gattinara. Travaglini Gattinara. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's and, so funny. And yeah. there's, there's kind of a gateway into the higher-end versions, whereas with some of these Napa producers or Sonoma producers, if you don't spend $100 on their bottle of wine, you don't get a chance to see what's coming off the vineyards. You don't get a chance to see what the winemaker, winemaker can do. Mm-hmm. Having a label that's $20, someone might go, man, that's freaking delicious. Now I want to try the next. I want to try the Big Brother now. Right, exactly. Well, and there's sort of a cool thing when, you know, if there's a you know at a restaurant like oh this uh, whatever it is a Saw Blanc or or this Grenache I don't know this producer what's that oh it's the second label to fill in the blank you know like which is a cool experience. Yeah, Bordeaux makes it's so confusing now. I mean, mm-hmm. I represented some second labels of uh, Chateau Gloria. Sure. And so then they made Bordeaux Gloria and they made (laughs) (laughs) so many side labels that it becomes confusing and convoluted like to the consumer especially. How do you spell that? What, Bordeaux Gloria? No, just the second part, not the Bordeaux part. G-L, yeah, you want me to sing it? Yep. (laughs) G-L-O-R. Well done. All right. Or some older people will understand that one. <laughs> yeah, I'm G-L-O-R. like, G L O R. How does that song go? I think they just. John, John has no idea what we're no, talking I'm, about. I'm so He's lost. lost. <laughs> like, what did I would have listened to where somebody's spelling out Gloria? Was that 70s? It was Van Morrison. No, was it Van Morrison? Yeah. Did it Gloria? No, there's no. another one. I thought it was like a, a disco version, too. It was probably. I feel like that's something for sure that would have been out there. Your your dad would know. Yeah, definitely. Well, my mom would know (laughs) if it was probably that. Totally. That's funny, you know, because you say the thing about Bordeaux, and you know, I've seen labels where it'll say Lafitte on it, or Mm -hmm. but it's like some introductory bottle, and people are like, "Wait, I thought that's you know the thousand plus dollar bottle." And you're like, "No, it's something totally different. It just has the same name." (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, like with what we're having here, this Bordeaux Blanc, um, Legend is is truly. Owned by Chateau Lafitte, and who also owns uh, Chateau Roussac, um, Chateau Duhart Milone. So, with with this wine in particular, this is legitimately um, a lot of declassified Chateau Roussac. It's right. delicious, by the way. Yeah. So, all right, so give us a quick lowdown on Bordeaux Blanc, or at least on maybe on this one or this producer, or mm-hmm. a little something on it, because a lot of people don't know. They think Bordeaux, they think red. Well, for sure. I mean, obviously, the <clears throat> the baby steps of Bordeaux, if it's if it's red, it's legally only going to be any makeup of Cab Sauve, Cab Franc, Merlot, uh, Malbec, Petit Verdot. If it's white, it's only going to be any makeup of either Sauve Blanc or Semillon. Typically, on in general, you know, 99.9% of the time, maybe 60, 70% Sauve Blanc, um, 30 or 40% Semillon. The Sauve Blanc, pretty classic um, uh, Sauve Blanc, but uh, I think different than, than say, obviously, New Zealand Sauv Blanc, the, um, 
those really super green and tropical notes that you get from those those areas doesn't come through in Bordeaux at all. <laughs> but then the Semillon at the same time, then Semillon is, I love Semillon, but it's it's flat and sort of fat and sort of dumb. Um, but with the contrast with Sablanca, it's it's a killer blend. Yeah, as I say, this comes off as like a little bit richer and creamier. It doesn't have like not like a New Zealand style where you get all the gooseberries or cat pee smell out mm-hmm. of this one. It's this an- one's way, it's richer. Yes, it's not racy. It's not yeah, it's right. not so acidic. Your mouth is running like crazy. You know, and that's something that I mean, I always felt Bordeaux whites have such a great place in the American market. Mm-hmm. However, sometimes they were a challenge because people don't understand it. You're trying to explain to them, well, it's Sauvignon Blanc without being aggressive, without being angry, without being because Sauvignon Blancs to the average person might be the the acidity could throw people off. For sure. You know, and I know people have been They've gravitated towards a New Zealand style, but this isn't even close to a New Zealand style. Like, no, there's not at all. You, you could blind taste this 100 times, and you'll never think it's New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Right. And I think, I mean, one, we, we don't see a lot of Bordeaux Blanc in, in the U.S. I mean, there's a handful of uh, importers. I mean, we're one of them, obviously, with top family selections. We bring in a couple or a few into the, into the U.S. I mean, there's a few other, other importers, but... So this actually has uh, Baron de Rothschild's crest on the front of the bottle. Yeah, yeah. it's legitimately uh, their their second label. The I was gonna grab a bottle of the Pouillac Bordeaux Rouge, which is like a steal for what uh, you'd find retail for about forty dollars a bottle, thirty nine ninety nine or something like that, um, or at a restaurant for about ninety dollars a bottle. Legitimately, what's in the bottle is like eighty percent Chateau Lafitte. I mean, it's awesome. like neutral oak, the neutral oak barrels yeah. that don't make it into the blend. I mean, this is a wine you could literally sit around all afternoon with friends outside on a patio mm-hmm. and just drink and mm-hmm. just enjoy great conversation. Like, I don't need anything with it. Crank so, up the Van Morrison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gloria. After a few of these, we'll remember the lyrics. So with... with or You will. <laughs> with, with some of the whites that I drink, they're so racy, you almost need them with food. You need yeah. something with them because of the acid. With this, you don't need it. Like, you could literally just pair this with a couple friends and be happy. I... Well, you and I are different in that way because all the whites that I know are not racy. I'm a very multicultural individual. <laughs> 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 all right. <laughs> I, I grew up in a very unique neighborhood in New York. <laughs> right, right, right. A lot of uh, white wine in that neighborhood. Yes. <laughs> a lot of uh, Slovaks in my neighborhood. No, it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's a killer bottle. It's a, it's it really is. Um, approximately, like if this was on a retail shelf, approximately where price point does it fall into? Like who's it competing with? This would be, I mean, on a shelf. This is at AJ's and you think it's about sixteen ninety nine. That's such a steal. <laughs> that is such a perfect price point to be sub 20. Mm-hmm. Salesman side of it. I fought with winemakers, importers about pricing because sometimes they're like, I have to hit margins. I have to do this. I said, listen, if you can go $1 cheaper, there's a huge difference between being $20 and 50 cents and 1995, even 40 or 50 cents just to hit whatever it is, the 89, 79 or or 49, whatever that number is going to roll up into. The the most expensive penny in the world is the penny that's between 99.99 and $100. On a wine list, when you're writing it, if that wine is $99 versus $100, once you hit that third digit, it sells at a whole different level. Exactly. Hmm. 
It's a very expensive penny. <laughs> it's an expensive penny. Very expensive penny. <laughs> or even look at the car dealers. Like you go buy a car nowadays, and they're like, it is forty nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars and ninety nine cents. Like, come on, <laughs> right? It's an expensive penny. <laughs> Do you guys know anybody who bought one of those cars from that car machine? The Carvana? Yeah. yeah right. Have ASU? you seen that? It's a car vending machine. Yeah, the one down on Tempe. Yeah. It's yeah. a real thing, right? Yeah. Have you not seen it yet? I've seen it, but I didn't like. I don't know. Like you, really, like you go put your money in the machine. Yeah, it's so you go up and you get a like a token, like a bit, like a plinko coin. <laughs> and no you walk, whammies. Yeah, no whammies. <laughs> <laughs> so you pop that thing in, and it you know grabs it, moves it down to the mill, and then it like brings it across the conveyor belt, and they open up a side garage, and it just like pushes it out and drops the keys <laughs> on the side, and there you go. See, see I think amazing. you can sell your car to them too. So like you could look, go on their app; they'll pick up your car. Like, they'll come to your house, pick it up, sold, yeah. and then you just take your token and go get a new car from yeah. the vending machine. That's wild. Technology, yeah. man. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's crazy, because I think they were popular in, like, Germany, and then somebody over here, a bunch of kids brought them and put them out here. And yeah, once they built that thing up there, it's so funny, because I get a lot of people who land, and uh, they'll stay in Scotland and be like, did you see the Tower of Cars? I'm like, yeah, it's literally a vending machine of cars. That's they have one at the Phoenix Rising game, where it's a BMW i8. And they put it upside down, like not, I'm sorry, not upside down, but like right side up. So uh, the hood's facing straight at the ground and they give people like little debit cards and somebody in the year like can possibly win it. All you do is go up to it and if it hits, it'll drop that car right there for you and you can take it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's a really cool advertising because the Phoenix Rising was sponsored What's by Phoenix Carbine. Rising? A new soccer team. So Arizona's got, or hopefully if all things go well, they'll have their own professional soccer team for MLS where they should be finding out soon. That's awesome. Yeah. So they had like Drogba was on it. They went to the championship this year, and so I yeah, need to read a local paper, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to state, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Been here for a while. Exactly. <laughs> Things have changed a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's funny because I'm literally I, I went and got all my stuff yesterday. I'm wearing the Phoenix Rising T-shirt. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Choke myself. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'd pull it off. That's I guess, awesome. I'm too lazy to do it. <laughs> Listeners, he just unzipped his full fly. Was full yeah. fly. <laughs> I mean, I'm supposed to guys, I mean, I'm, I'm pantsless every time we do denim, these things. <laughs> full de- denim coveralls. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. I was really impressed that you're wearing denim coveralls. And I'm wearing the same denim coveralls. Do you like my straw hat, too? That's a very nice straw So, so the, tr- the trend continues. I've known you now for like... I met 2008, so 11 years. I still have never seen you without a sport coat on. Yeah. I'm is that a Misfits uh, handkerchief? It is a Misfits handkerchief. Excellent. I love the Misfits. A band that changed my life. It's for the worst or the better? For the best. <laughs> no, for the best. Set me on a path. Some kid on my bus in like elementary school was like, you're kind of weird and you like music. And my cousin gave me this tape and it's really weird. Do you want it? And that was <laughs> Misfits Walk Among Us, their there, first album. There was something about handing people tapes back in the day. Mm-hmm. Like, on the bus, I got handed so many cool tapes that people were like gotta listen to this. What? Like, that's yeah, so weird. Because that's how you traded music. It wasn't. It's like, funny. I just text people now music. You, 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 yeah. you it's so weird. You text like, them a YouTube link, or you text sure. them a link to a SoundCloud or something like that. Yeah. Whereas it was on the bus, you'd be like, "Hey, side one is gonna be Dead Kennedys. Side two is the Minuteman. Exactly. You, you're gonna love the Minuteman." Like, yeah. Did you ever have the blank tapes and sit up uh, while I was on the radio and wait to record at the exact moment like a song was <laughs> yeah. coming on, build your own mixtapes? Yeah. I was like, right as I was coming out of grade school, like right before I got a CD player, I used to do that all the time. We did the same thing with uh, like MTV with music videos too. Yeah. Just like make a whole compilation of 
every video I wanted to see. <laughs> awesome. That's how you picked up girls back in the day. Exactly. You, you made them a mixtape <laughs> or a videotape of like Cindy Lauper and getting uh, getting all the girls there with your Cindy Lauper mixtapes. Hell yeah. <laughs> hey, in 1986, it worked. <laughs> That's perfect. So just some white Bordeaux and some Cindy Lauper. Exactly. <laughs> Call it a night. I think people do need and to the drink. Misfits. I think, and the Misfits. I think people need to drink more white Bordeaux, though. I do too. It's, I mean, the balance in the wine is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is. It's so drinkable. People that like a rich Chardonnay are not going to gravitate towards this. But if you like something along the lines of, even I'd say a Pinot Grigio drinker. I feel like mm-hmm. Pinot Grigios would absolutely like this. Because there's an aromaticness to it. For sure. But there's a little extra creaminess, a little extra roundness, probably because of the semion. Exactly. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's a full-bodied white wine, for sure. And what will be coming into the market, also into Arizona, soon will be, um, this is declassified Chateau Roussac. We've got a, well, in Chateau Roussac, uh, you know, from Sauterne, very famous Sauterne producer, so Sauterne, you know, being the dessert style, um, white Bordeaux wine, obviously there's Chateau Ikem, and then Roussac is, is probably right underneath Ikem, though. Um, Roussac does make a, a non-sweet white blend, right. which is what this is derived from, though, but that's coming into this different price point than this, um, much higher price point, not crazy higher, but... I'll bring you guys a bottle. So I'm going to be a moron for a second. So um, something along the lines of Salterns, I know that's Botrytis-affected grapes. Are those going to be Semillon or Sauvignon Blanc? Is it Semillon, typically? Yeah, well, it can be both. Um, And for Sauterns, it doesn't have to be affected by Botrytis, but that's that's the goal, the the noble rot. As long as, because I guess it doesn't happen every year no matter what. Correct, yeah, because there's vintages of Ikem, that, like, well, this one's not. This is only a ninety-eight point wine, not a hundred, because they, <laughs> they didn't they didn't really get botrytis. Do they char- fully get into that grape? <laughs> do they charge more on botrytis years, or they still just charge the same price every year? Just kind of curious. <laughs> He's like, I don't know. No, I, no, it it varies. Their pricing varies, but they also, specifically with Ecam, they don't produce every year. They only produce in Ecam years. So there's a few sub-producers that you can find if you know that they are the ones that are buying Ekem, and it's like it's a fraction of the cost. So like, oh, wait, Ekem didn't produce this vintage. Okay, I'm going to go buy this vintage from this producer because they're just buying every, all the fruit from Ekem. See, that's a difference between somebody that owns their property outright for hundreds of years versus True. somebody who just bought a piece of property because a Napa producer can't just say, you know what? I am not going to sell my wine this year because it's not where yeah, I want rare. it. Exactly. Like, like Super s- rare. San Leonardo in Italy. Like the best Bordeaux house in Italy. I don't know if you ever had San Leonardo yeah, yeah. or familiar, but they don't produce the wine every year. No, I live in a cave, dude. Hey, yo. <laughs> I never tried to sell you that one, so I don't know. A lot of people don't know San Leonardo yeah. out there. I mean, it's probably the least known of the highest quality Italian wineries out there. Sure. People think of Sasakaya, Tiganello's, all those. San Leonardo doesn't get quite the global press. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. In America, yeah, that's it does. Fair. If you're in Germany, if you're in other countries, mm-hmm. you're like, oh yeah, San Leonardo. They don't get it here. Yeah, but they don't produce that wine every single year. Whereas, I mean, somebody like Groth or Silver Oak or Turnbull or like, if they just had one year, they said, no, we're we're not going to make our wine this year. Like it'd be 
They yeah. have, they'd well, probably shut down. Well, to be fair, yeah. though, a huge difference on that is is it's California. The only thing that's going to stop them from producing any wine is the fires. Like, because you're going to even in the like one of their bad years, which was like what 2011, the wines I've still had them, and they're more Bordeaux style. It's not like they're bad; they're just Bordeaux ish. Yeah. So, you know, okay, so it's not what they're going with. But yeah, I mean, I know plenty of people who don't have certain vineyard sites from 2017 because they weren't able to pick the grapes. Everything got toasted out by that point in time. Or in some cases, unfortunately, the winery burned to the ground. Yeah. Well, and I mean, for the most part, the, the 17 fires, most everything was picked at that point. Yeah. But what was hanging out... You got a lot of, like, so I know some people that had a lot of Zinfandel that was still out sure, there. Was for sure, sure. Mo- pretty much most of what the people I knew, they lost their Zin. Most didn't lose any cabs. I only knew one that had a problem because it hit the top of Santa Rosa and their storage oh, facility yeah. got nuked, basically. It was just, everything was cooked. But uh, any grapes that were still out there at the time were pretty much Zinfandel. There is one major amount of bulk wine, though, coming onto the market right now from 2017 that a lot of people are selling, um, especially if it's coming off the mountains, Mm -hmm. where they're like, there's a little smoke taint to it. So I've asked for samples to try them because, you know, I can get 10 buck gallon Mount Veter juice. But the second I tried it, I was like, well, there's no point of this ever touching oak because it literally already tastes burnt. Now, it's not bad. Sell it as barbecue wine or something, but it's definitely right. not something you would really put in a bottle and market as your best wine. No, exactly. Um, we saw, let's see, there was Sonoma County fires in... You talking about 17? Not 17, but um, just speaking of smoke damage, we saw a lot of smoke damage in oh, from the 08 fires. <clears throat> and you know the bug earwig? Yeah. The earwigs? So what we saw while sorting fruit from the 2008 fires, and it was mainly Mendocino County went down into, went south into Sonoma County. Anything that was up that far north, all that fruit was so riddled with earwigs. And, you know, for, for sorting fruit, we would sort once in the vineyard, only picking the best possible clusters, getting the small bins back to the winery, uh, two of us on either side of an incline, you know, picking up every single cluster of grapes, getting rid of um, anything we don't want on there. If there was you know, botrytis, which we didn't want on, on still red wine, you know, ripping that off, um, whatever might, might be underripe fruit, overripe fruit, um, then destemming a hundred percent. And then at least two of us on either side of a vibrating shaker table, just picking through every, like literally grape by grape. And that's every year for, for quality wine. Um, but that year specifically because of the smoke damage, there was so many earwigs and I mean, just everywhere because they were jumping into the clusters of grapes and trying to protect themselves from the smoke and from the fires. Um, If you take an earwig and you crush it up in your hands and you smell it, it is like, it smells like a dirty ashtray. (laughs) So the wines that I've had from Sonoma County and Mendocino County from 2008 that have smoke damage. (laughs) Creepy. It is for sure not as much of the smoke damage as it is earwig Earwig taint. That yeah. is so weird. Yeah. I learned something new today. That is wow. crazy. Yeah, I never would have known that. It, so if you smell gross. dirty ashtray, you're smelling earwig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because the, the, there's a psalm listening out there like, oh, Well, you're yes. talking about the non-natural stuff, or like I said, it's natural, but yeah. stuff that's ending up non-grape particulates that are ending Mom. up in your wine. Earwig. Jesus. Mom. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. That's where that happened, because 2018 had a bunch of fires, but they were more towards Lake County and the Sierra Foothills and... Mm-hmm. That northern Mendocino area. Yeah. So I know there's a few places in like Napa and Sonoma didn't really get affected. Not as much, no. It's amazing that that's what they're going to have to deal with more and more. Because, I mean, it is wet right now. And uh, 
that grass is going to grow, and here comes the fire season in a couple exactly. months. Exactly. And everything is so overgrown. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. So, I mean, every year at the same time, I mean, from where we were living in Sonoma County, I mean, there are multiple nights, not just 17, uh, but I mean, many years in between, you know, 09 and 17, though, having to stay up all night just because the the fire was breaking on the other side of, of you know, a small mountain, the Mayakamas Mountains or something like that, and you had to be up in case it jumped to the 101. Yeah. Just keeping an eye on it because there's no one to call and tell you, hey, <laughs> you got to go. <laughs> well, tell the cell reception out there all the time driving through Sonoma Coast oh, yeah. County. Yeah. No, for sure. I had to drive through Santa Rosa one of the last times I came to visit you guys, uh-huh. and it was... I don't know, three to four months after the fire, and it was creepy. I mean, it really was weird driving through that town. It was something almost out of an apocalypto movie, like cars that were like stacked on top of each other and houses that were completely gone except for the chimney and a swing set, like the outline of the swing set. And that's like whole neighborhoods. All you saw were swing sets and chimneys, and everything else was just gone. Yeah. Like it it was creepy. It was like something out of Mad Max. Yeah, last time I was there. I stopped for gas on the way back to the airport and just pulled up and then got out of the car to go in to pay because I was going to pay cash. I was standing in the parking lot of a gas station I went to for almost 10 years. I'm like, oh, that's right. This burnt down. I was like literally standing in in an empty parking lot. I wasn't even paying attention. I was just kind of rushing to get to the airport. But I can't wait to taste the wine and say, oh, I'm getting hints of earwig. (laughs) <laughs> that's gonna be a fun tasting it's, note. it's that's what's running through my mind right now it's kind of freaking me out a little bit I'm trying to think of how much I, stuff i have from 2008 left yeah i've got a couple i'll pull something for you guys to check out that i know for sure has your wig tape yeah <laughs> well i eat taco bell so i know i'm eating bugs occasionally <laughs> have you guys been to taco bell cantina yet what downtown phoenix it's like a fancy taco bell I don't know if it's fancy, but it's a bar and a Taco Bell. Wait, wait, wait. Oh no, God. I haven't. I actually haven't heard of this. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, opened like a month ago. They I mean, make I li- a munchie box. I live in Taco Rose. So right. There's every Taco Bell in Cantina. <laughs> Let's just say that going to eat a Taco Bell is not my top priority around here. <laughs> of course. Because, I mean, I got something between Chiwas, Satasayama, uh, Manuela's, uh, Rosita's. Well, Taco's Chiwas is its own animal. I mean, that is like... So I had a Spanish producer in town this week that I used to represent. Actually, his wines are the Spanish portfolio that Vias represents nationally. Uh, Campos de Luz. Okay. The the wines are fantastic. Mm -hmm. But Ignacio's here to do some promotional stuff. And he's like, can we get together for some food? And I'm like, coming to my neighborhood. He's like, all right. I'm like, we're going for tacos. I took the Chivas last night. Awesome. We ordered so many freaking tacos. We were done. He looks at me and goes, can I order more? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, give yeah. more. And so we ordered a whole nother plate. So we sat there for like probably an hour and a half drinking cheap Mexican beer and yeah. eating barbacoa, carnitas, mm-hmm. carne asada, pollo, whatever the ones. <laughs> I don't do the, the tripa. I don't do the tripe. No. And I'm not a big fan of the tongue. Yeah, I get it. Not a tongue person, huh? <laughs> it's... It was one of those things that grandma used to make. It used to freak me out. Yeah. Grandma used to make cow tongue on a regular basis. And I don't know. I think it was just the texture. Mm-hmm. I'm a texture person with food. I mean, I've talked about it with uh, uni. Oh, I, I, I love uni. See, everyone looks at me like I'm crazy when I say can't eat uni. It doesn't mm. go down. It sits right here. It's like really bad tequila. Like it just it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't pass past like this part it's of my body. Throat, yeah. That's more of a bummer though. I'm sorry. Because I, like it's uni is so good. I love it cooked in things. Sure, but just by itself, I just I tried. I tried. It just doesn't go down. I can't explain it. 
I would just uh, maybe last Friday. I can't remember. Um, but I'm close with Cullen from Bar Pesce, mm-hmm. and we always talk uni, whatever. And he had just got some killer uni, and and I, I belled it up at the bar, and it just he sliced off the top of it, and kind of Santa Barbara style, where you just have a spoon in the bowl and a little lemon, a little cracker. Just, God, it's it's awesome. Just can't do it. I'll and, keep trying. Don't get me wrong. Next time you're in Sonoma County, you should go to, in Geyserville, go to Diavola. All right. And uh, get the tripe. Dino's tripe is incredible. And I'm not a tripe person at all, but it definitely changed me as far as eating tripe. Yeah. I thought it was awesome. I was selling wine up in Sonoma last year. I was stopped by the little barbecue joint. I opened the door. Somebody walks out. You're the next person walking. I'm like, Sean? (laughs) (laughs) It was so random. It's Small farmer town, right? That's probably why the farmers have fought to fight the tasting rooms and fight the commercialization, because maybe they do like the fact that it's still a small, small town, town. Yeah. mentality. I mean, yeah, yeah. that was Healdsburg Square is what we were. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and Healdsburg, living in Healdsburg was awesome. I mean, it's a great, a great town, a, amazing town. I, even that, you know, living there year after year, going to, you know, Big John's Market for groceries, and standing next to Joe Rocchioli, you know, like he's getting goosebumps and like being nervous to even see him next to me at the grocery store, like was was amazing. But and, and many people like that. That's know. what's special about Sonoma that there are places in Napa like that. But that's one of the things that drives me crazy about Napa is become so commercialized. So many of the wineries are owned by corporations and mm-hmm. not owned by the farmers anymore. For sure. Whereas when you're in Healdsburg, once again, you go to the farmer's market and you're actually, you know, famous wines that we know of, the actual farmer sit there buying his tomatoes for dinner at his house. Yeah, definitely. Well, and even I think, um, I mean, Napa is very similar to Bordeaux, where it is multinational, international money, not necessarily the family from that area, but I mean, some big money building castles and producing wine directly from that one place that, that the winery is at, that their castle is at. Sonoma County is very similar to Burgundy, where, I mean, it's, it's the farmers that are, that are doing everything. And because of that, there's great farmers in Napa, too. I'm not saying there isn't, but... That's with, interesting. With, with Sonoma County and similar to Burgundy, the vineyards are as famous as the wineries. So you'll see the same vineyard name across 20 different... That's funny you say that because there's so much... I can only think of a couple vineyard sites in Napa that are real famous beyond mm-hmm. the wineries, like obviously a Tokalon or Dr. Crane or something. Sure. But thinking about all the Pinot Noir and Chardonnay I drink from Russian River, like I've had San Giacomo from, I don't know, like maybe eight, nine different yeah. wineries. Yeah. And it's such a well-known site. Or uh, Rocchio- Rocchioli's... Yeah, Rocchioli. Because I get their version from William Selium. Because I I've, I think yeah. the only membership I'm a part of is William Selium and like one other one. But... uh because I, I like doing certain sites because Pinot Noir to me is very, I'm picky. I am picky about certain well, it's ones. super site specific. It's very site specific. I find that I love Napa Cab coming off the mountains way more mm-hmm. than I do the mm-hmm. floor, but I'm not going to turn down floor stuff. But I've had good producers make a Pinot from a site I never liked. It turns out I personally like more like Fort Ross View or that far Sonoma Coast. Mm-hmm. I like as it get more towards Sebastopol. But so every time I go out there, I have some really fun stuff to try. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, it is crazy driving around those places because you're right, it is farmland USA still oh, on some of those places. Yeah. Going across that one lane bridge in between certain areas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I lived right up the river on top of the hill of the main Wooler Bridge, which is a one lane bridge. I mean, 
I thought I was going. I thought I was going to end up in the wrong area of town when I was crossing that bridge. I'm mm-hmm. like, this can't be the right way. Right. There's no, there's no way. Dude, I've definitely <laughs> driven past some houses in the Russian River or even like the Sonoma area. I'm like, they might make meth in there. <laughs> oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, it's like back deep in the woods, yeah. and there's like six trailers all tied together, and you're like, oh, okay. No, that's. I mean, West County is. That's, that's a whole thing. I mean, it's a, it's a different world in West County. There's some yeah. great places in West County. I've got a lot of friends there, but still, so, West County's weird. So many people across America have no idea what really goes on in Sonoma and Napa. For sure. Like, you look at it, you, you think about a wine producer. Growing up, I thought about these wineries, and I thought, oh, my God, if I ever meet one winemaker, it'd be amazing. Mm-hmm. I, then you realize they're just farmers. They're down-to-earth people. Like, they all run in the same circles. It's so easy. Like, you start meeting winemakers or producers and whether they're famous or obscure or these big wineries, like people that I saw on the shelf growing up and I, now the producers are people that I consider friends. Yeah, exactly. You know, and you, you go to those towns and it's not big castles, you know? No, it, I mean, it hundred percent is scraped to glass everywhere you go. I mean, I had an experience like moving back to Phoenix where I just, I it overworked myself for better part of a decade and didn't really have a day off for better part of 10 years. And it seems like maybe moving from literally living, we live living in the middle of a vineyard, to moving back to just a few blocks from here in a very central part of Phoenix, um, it would seem like going from you know paradise to the big city. It was a complete opposite for me, where I mean, just every, I had anxiety for like two months because my whole world just slowed down. I was just like everything was <laughs> accessible. It was around me. I didn't have to you know, hunt to kill. It was just like, it was weird just kind of resetting my internal clock and my internal pace is just, I was just moving, 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 moving to this. Okay, cool. I'm in the city. Everything's accessible. Move back to the city to slow down, which is weird. It's It's just the opposite of what it should have been. Exactly. Exactly. Most people are like, I'm gonna move to the countryside to Mm -hmm. slow down. Yeah. But then again, when you're in the countryside, that's your work. So you're always there. You're always around it. You know, I mean, you're kind of, yeah. Well, and you can't the, really escape it. I mean, on a Saturday afternoon, mm-hmm. if you live near the vineyard, you're probably still going to be doing stuff in the vineyard or near the vineyard or has to do with the vineyard or well, for sure. I mean, if you, you know, you go into town to get groceries and you forget toilet paper or paper towels. I mean, that's another 40 minutes out of your life to, to go back and get that. You, <laughs> you, know? you don't have Food City right around the corner. Right. <laughs> I mean, we we had um, some baby doll sheep. In our, so we planted a couple acres of Grenache in the backyard overlooking the Russian River, which was amazing. Four baby doll sheep that were so cool because they, they, they would eat the grass. It was on a very steep hill. Um, but they weren't tall enough to eat the grapes. Night before Thanksgiving... 2010, 2011, or something like that, an animal got into their pen and then attacked all four and just ripped them apart. I mean, it was gruesome. It was like a horrific... Got a coyote or mountain lion or yeah, something, probably. Yeah, it was, a, it was horrific. So we finally got a vet to come out, um, which that took a whole... That was an ordeal in itself just to get somebody to come out on Thanksgiving morning. And the vet just like, well, what do you want me to do? You want to use my gun or your gun? Yeah. No, these are our pets, like... This Not one, anymore, anymore. This one's T Boz. This is Chili. This is Charlie Murphy. Like, no, these are our pets. Like, no, no. 
There's no. That's a great, best name possible. <laughs> like, oh, and Robin Givens was the other one. She was <laughs> awesome. And I got to talk to Robin Givens on the phone once and like, is it true? You have a sheep named after me? I'm like, you bet I do. <laughs> That's <laughs> hilarious. But it was like, you know, we're gonna, we got to put him down. I'm like, we're not putting him down. This, this is our family. Like, this not, that's not a thing. Like, well, it's going to be really expensive. Like, well, we'll just, we'll figure it out. We'll make payments, whatever. He's like, no, it's going to be really expensive to fix these animals. It's going to be a lot of work. I'm like, we'll figure it out. These are our pets. Finally, he's like, well, it's going to be probably close to $300. I'm like, yeah, okay. Let's just, just <laughs> shut up. Let's fix the animals and let's get on with it. But then, I mean, but then it was like three times a day cleaning them, fixing them for like three months. But that was like a whole thing, just being in the wilderness, being out in the middle of nowhere and, and yeah. getting supplies for that. I mean, just the random things like that that add life and death to, to like, it's beautiful to drink a glass of wine in a vineyard for sure, but there's a, a life and death aspect to it as well. Well, it's one thing about Napa. It's more of like a Disneyland for yeah. wine drinkers than Sonoma is more of an experience probably. Well, you got the munchies and it's 11 o'clock at night. I can go to 20 places within a mile. Yeah. You don't have that option probably living up there. Exactly. No, no, also, I mean, if you go in your backyard, apparently you might get eaten by something. Very much so. <laughs> very much so. Yeah, I mean, the whole town of Healdsburg shuts down by 9 o'clock for the most part. A couple of cool bars now. But. Yeah, there's that one dive bar right there just off the square I can think of. That's really fun. <laughs> there's uh, <laughs> This is delicious, by the way. Cherisuolo. Yeah. Planeta. Sicilian Nero de Avila. You know, it's the only it's the only DOCG in uh, Sicily. I did not know that. It's pretty cool. Why don't you talk about this one a little bit? I know nothing about it. (laughs) No, Planeta is is kind of the name uh, in Sicilian wines. Yeah, I mean, Sicily is not a big area. I mean, you can drive around it in a day, but they have four actual wineries on this beautiful piece of rock. Because the the terroir is so drastically different, and what you're able to do there, I mean, this is fun. I mean, Nero de Avila, you know, classic Italian grape, but for Pato, I don't think we see as much around the U.S. as much. You're seeing more of it. I'm seeing yeah. more wine writers and bloggers and people talk about it because it's almost like a substitute of Pinot Noir. Sure, it, light, but fruity, easy drinking, fruity. not a lot of backbone when it's. 120 degrees in Phoenix, you can yeah. sit around and drink a red wine outside still. For somebody who likes fruity whites, who says, I don't like red wine, Frappato is... It's a good gateway, right and there. it's also a good gateway into drinking red wine. How many times you've probably had white wine drinkers say, I don't really drink red wine. Can you recommend something that I could start with? Right. What do we say? Pinot Noir. Right, exactly. It's always our start, but Frappato is a perfect way to guide people into starting to drink red wines. Right. Well, and that's... A, when people say, I don't drink red or I don't drink white, like... <laughs> as, as we know, I mean, the, the, you don't squeeze a grape and red juice comes out of it or white juice yeah. comes out of it. There's, there's like three grapes that no one ever talks about that actually produce red juice, but it, it's all the same juice. Like it's, it's, it's not a thing. I mean, taking a grape from the grocery store, a green one and a red one, it's the same color that's on the juice. inside. Yeah. You know what, guys? We're all the same it's on the inside. I knew that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> if he didn't say it, I was going to say it. <laughs> but it's true, though. And, it and, is, yeah. And... So, but a, a lot of these regions, their wines for thousands of years have developed based around their cuisine. And in mm-hmm. Sicily, you're having so much fish. Yeah. Everything is fish-based. So you don't want a big, bold, heavy red wine when, first of all, you're on an island. It's hot. Right. There, yeah, there's, there's, there's three dudes that have air conditioning units on the entire island. 
<laughs> and that's it. So the last thing you want to do is have a giant super Tuscan style wine. You don't want to have a Bordeaux style wine. Like if you're going to have a red wine, it's got to be a little lighter bodied, a little fruitier. Something's going to go with ahi tuna, right? A Bronzino, a uh, Polipo, like a little grilled octopus or something. Stuff that they have in that island. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, yeah, but you don't want heavy tannin. I think the yeah. most important thing for any wine is either you like what's in the glass in front of you or you don't. Food and wine pairing, no real science, you know, behind, for the most part. I mean, obviously, balance is what everyone looks for. But that said, like, salmon sashimi and Merlot just makes my skin crawl. Like, oh, okay, that's just wrong. Just don't do that, you know. <laughs> Please just don't do that. But at the end of the day, you know what, though? Uh, a great filet with a, you know... Burgundy sauce on top of it or something like that, or mm-hmm. like a nice rich red wine sauce and butter. You don't want to pair it with a white Zivendel. But you know right. what? My mom is going to want white Zivendel with that because that's what she drinks. You could say, oh, you should have this red. Uh-uh. Ain't going to work because she doesn't like red wine. Right. Yeah, so. well, some people like to put flames on their cars, so everybody's got some bad choices. Yeah, some people <laughs> like well-done steaks. <laughs> I mean, we're all different. <laughs> we used to have a... I don't want to say who because she's so super sweet, but really high profile um, singer that would go into Digestif. And that was her favorite restaurant. And the only thing she would order was super well done steaks. Um, like, nicest person in the world. And like, I, she's just incredibly talented. She may have just hosted the Grammys, um, but, uh, <laughs> but she, and she needed uh, ketchup as well, which we didn't have ketchup at Digestif. That wasn't a thing. So having to go next door to get ketchup and like, why you're coming all the way here? Like she she flew into town one time just to go there. It wasn't even there wasn't a show in town or anything like that. So she came in to get a well done steak there with ketchup. Like okay. to each their own. I've right. learned I've learned that, and that's something about the wine business that we have to forget about. That our palates are not the rest of America's palates. Right. We drink a lot. Of, we drink more wines on a Tuesday than the average American drinks in a year. True. As far as different types. So, hey, people want to have ketchup on their steak and they want to have white Zivendel with it. Awesome. Yeah. Like, it's... That's I, one hell of a pairing. I can, guide, <laughs> I can guide them down some different paths, but if that's what they like and that's what makes them happy, mm-hmm. you can't try and change them. I mean, you could... If they're ready to change, they want to have guidance down that path, hey, I'll, I'll light a couple torches and show them the way. Right. But that's about <laughs> it. Like, yeah, I... I don't know. How do you go back from that, though? Like, you go from well done to, like, sort of well, and instead of a white sand, you do a Moscato. Oh, my, yeah. my, my stepfather's always had well done steaks, and then I got him tr- eating medium well, and now I've kind of had him medium, medium, baby steps. Mm-hmm. He's like, wow, this is so much more tender. Like, it's funny, Sarah. No, no shit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not choking on this. <laughs> Sarah, my, so my girlfriend, she loves well done, but she loves the taste of burnt things. And, but it's funny because she'll apologize. She'll be like, listen, I want a well-done steak or a well-done this. And she's like, I'm sorry. I just, I love that's the way it's done. And the service is like, okay, cool. But she never has to worry about like, like I was uh, at AZ Wine the other night and somebody at Atlas was like, I, I want it medium, but I don't want any pink. And Oscar's like, so you want it well? And she goes, no, medium. And he goes, and he knew it. Like he was like, she's going to complain the second I drop this off. And of course he does. And she goes, oh no, I meant like crispy and black. And she's like, he's like, that's well done. <laughs> right. It's just like, oh, man. Because people are afraid because they go to some places where they say well done and they end up getting complete shoe leather. Like, there's a difference between cooking a steak <laughs> Get to, tongue. to no pink right? and somebody that's like, all right, I'm going to drop it in the fryer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I mean. Then the other side of the coin, too, I think, is, is wrong. Like, 
I had a roommate long, long ago um, who he just loved raw meat so much. You like the blue, <laughs> but not even blue. He would he would order, and some places would, many places wouldn't. Though he just wanted the raw steak, like not even any sear on it whatsoever. Ah, see, that's crazy. Oh, if somebody came in the restaurant and ordered that, I'd be like, uh, uh-uh. uh. No, I mean, dude was kind of creepy though too, because he would like I'd that. Dude in, has a basement full of raw meat from people. Has, <laughs> he probably does. Now. I mean, this is we're going back. 20 years ago before I moved to Arizona the first time anyway like I was still living in Minneapolis um, was he in <laughs> Silence of the Lambs <laughs> he would sit there in the, in the living room li- no joke with like a ball of uh, ground hamburger meat and just sit there watch TV and eat it but okay it, and his mom was it's that good. way his it's... brother was that way like he was raised that way like, this was, was your roommate or your friend a roommate see that's good because the crazy Weird people friend. who eat people don't kill the roommates because that's suspicious. Exactly. That's the trick to doing it. Make sure you hang out with those people and yeah. then run away as fast as you can. But when you go to Piedmont, they serve like their carpaccio. Sure. Like, and it, or like, uh, not carpaccio, tartar. tartars. And you'll get a baseball sized piece of tartar with like a raw egg on top of it. And they'll just cover it with truffles so you don't see the meat. And you're just like, oh, it's okay. And that's, they eat that way. Yeah. I don't dig tartare, though. I like tuna tartare, but I don't, I, beef tartare, I've never been able to get, wrap my head around. I mean, like, it, it was, oh, but you'll eat uni. That's a different, <laughs> totally different. It's it came out of the ocean, man. Yeah. It's fine. Well, but it, it's a different flavor, too. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, but I mean, like, if, to break down a wine and say what a wine tastes like, you know, there's a specific flavor profile on each food as well. And I think legitimately, not my opinion, but I think legitimately what the beef, like raw beef flavor profile is, is uh, is blood and fe- irony. Oh well, blood and fecal matter are the two flavors, and I just so I blood know. and hot snake. Exactly. <laughs> See what's funny? The word <laughs> Damien. bloody, awesome. bloody, bloody hot snakes. <laughs> so planeta. <laughs> Go back to the wine. <laughs> what is that? well? The wine is incredible. Well, it's do, delicious, do, do, do you know man. anything this about so this DOCG? Good. I know I know a little bit about it. What? Why it was declared? Well, I know that it's the only, like I said, it's the only DOCG in Sicily is Cerasuolo de Vittoria. They yep. had the most amount. It of has probably. to come from Vittoria area, which yep. is in the what southeastern portion. Uh, yep. It has to be a blend of Frappato and Nero. Mm-hmm. You can't be more than sixty percent of either one of them. So it'll yep. often be. 50-50 or 60-40 mm-hmm. is about to blend, but you can't be a 70-30 and be Cherisuolo. Right. And that's about all I know as far as the DOC, as far as aging and stuff like that. I'm not sure. That's the basics, I know. Yeah, yeah. but... Yeah, it's a 60-40. But if this is the only DOCG of Sicily, it's got to be prestigious. Like, they got to be doing something right. Like Exactly. I guess the one thing I don't know, which I do need to find out, which now I will tonight, though, what prompted that? To become. Well, that's our two grapes. That's our two oh, most sure. famous for grapes. Sure. That's what, if you're going to say this is the the wine cuisine of Sicily, it's going to be Cerasuolo and Nero. Yeah. So might as well make the, the, the one iconic wine a blend of the two. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I would not be surprised in the next, say, 15 or 20 years if there's another two DOCGs that pop up. One of 100% Nero or close to it, mm-hmm. and then one of Frappato of 100%. Yeah. You've been to Vinitaly, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How great is that book, the D- the list of DOC and DOCGs that, that, that Vinitaly Mind-blowing. It's insane. Vinitaly is mind-blowing. Yes. 
the fact that there's 15 IKEA sized warehouses filled with just Italian wines. Excellent description too, because I've always described it as like, imagine like 15 Home Depots, and each one is its own region. Yeah. Like, yeah. The fact that Emilia Romagna has a warehouse the size of IKEA, mm-hmm. and some of these are two stories, and people build like full expo booths. It's not like you know John Franco standing behind a pop up table pouring his wine. Right. It's like no, his grandma's cooking on a stove, <laughs> and he's like, no, no, come on, sit down, try my wines, and I got pasta, and I got cheese, and I got meat yeah. that my neighbor produced, and I made th- it's oh full <laughs> legs of whatever hanging everywhere. Oh, it's I it, imagine the uh, longest line is the espresso line in that place. <laughs> yes, there he is. yeah. Actually, that's the amazing thing about uh, not Vinitaly but uh, Provine. Uh huh. Each region has their own giant warehouse, and it's very different. When you go to the French section, everybody's very prim and proper. Everyone's dressed up to a certain level, but, and I was being a little kind of hoity-toity. Where you go over to the Italian section, and nobody's behind their booths. They're all piled up in the espresso area, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're all in full tailored suits and jackets, and no one's talking. Or everyone's talking, and no one's listening, <laughs> and they're all waiting to get espresso. Everybody's got black then, guys are accidentally hitting each other in their face with their hands. It, it really the the dynamic from each and every region or each and every warehouse at Provine is crazy because you it, and it really showcases the culture, you know, especially yeah. the, I said. There is nobody waiting in line in the espresso booth in the French section, but good luck getting an espresso in the, in the Italian, Italian section. section. Sure. <laughs> That's fun. I enjoy those big tastings. I do too. I, some of the, like, when it gets towards the end, if it's a, if it's a day tasting, it's the end of the day tasting, or it's... The public the day of, in Italy is a, yeah. a hot mess. Yeah. I mean, a mess, yeah, because of people, and people are maybe over-imbibing, but... <laughs> no, in Italy, what a surprise! <laughs> exactly. But the the taste things around the amount of noise. So, like, what fills up this? I mean, all of your senses when when looking at a wine, smelling a wine, tasting a wine. When there's so much white noise in a giant hall, with the white noise is in your eyeballs and it's in your ears and it's up your nose and it's down your mouth. Like, it's so disorienting that like it's tough to even taste wine in that environment. So what I like to do is I like to start with the big reds in the morning. So it's, it's a 9 a.m., 9 to 5 kind of event. Mm-hmm. So I go to big Tuscany wines at 9 a.m. By I ni- like it. Because no one's there. No one's there because a lot of people start with whites and then they go to reds. Well, by the time you get to the reds, you're, the whites have already stripped all the enamel off your teeth mm-hmm. from all those high acid whites. <laughs> and mm-hmm. your palate's already a little fatigued by the time you even get to the reds. Sure. So I like to start... Brunello's also going to rip that acid. Yeah. Drinking Brunello at 9 a.m. is sometimes a little rough anyways. <laughs> but I like going through the reds, grabbing lunch, and then going to the whites because it's like a refreshing thing in the afternoon then. Yeah. Like I've already... I did the big reds. Now it's time to scale this back a little bit. I kind of go the opposite yeah. for those big tastings. I dig that. That's so smart. Hey, Jamie's got good I got, ideas. I got a couple of them. The more you know. Yeah. We always have we have one of those moments on the show, and it's always something really <laughs> stupid. <laughs> I'll tell you, this this planet is fantastic. I actually, when I saw that you're representing this, it made me really happy because it's something I represented years ago. They make great wines across wines the board. Are so good, they really do. So this is their highest end one, or is this their introductory one? This is not introductory. Um, this is flagship classic. They, they make a hundred percent frappato that is just 
don't even leave the, just pull the cork out as fast as you possibly can and get the wine into the glass. It just, I mean, such a fun guzzler of a wine. I mean, <laughs> awesome. just, it's, it's a beautiful example of Frappato. It's fun too, because then that way, if you especially if you know what you're drinking, you get to enjoy it, and everybody else is like, "I don't want to try that. I don't know exactly. what frappato is." Right? Exactly. Well, it's nuts because you could you could spend. We were talking about this the the podcast. We could do a thousand podcast episodes and not touch every varietal in Italy. Oh, for sure. There's no other country out there like that. No, I mean Greece is. I think I don't know exactly how many varieties are in Italy now, but. Italians don't know either. Yeah, it's, it's okay. <laughs> it's sizably less in Greece, and Greece is 900. I mean, Italy has more than double what Greece has. And then moving down into France and the U.S. with, you know, a few hundred, you know, a couple hundred. It'd be, I'd love to time travel and see how far America is going to go with its craziness of buying different varietals and trying to experiment every single place possible. There's a guy out here, John, who, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think he bought like 250 acres of vineyards um, to, again, to beef up the industry, and he just planted everything he possibly could just to see what ends up working over a period of time. So it's like an experimental block, basically. Wow. So, I mean, I, honestly, like... Where where are you at up north or down south? No, every so everything's pretty much down that Wilcox Sonora area. Yeah, so yeah. down south by Mexico. Yeah, um, it's similar to weather of Paso Robles, minus it's three thousand, four thousand feet higher. Yeah, so you're getting a lot of thinner, like wine coming down. But um, it's a cool area. I mean, I've, I've buddies with with Todd at Dos Cabezas down there. Yeah, Kent, Todd's cool dude. Kent Kent, Kent yeah. yeah. Who's awesome. Kent's a rock star. Yeah, absolutely. There's some of those guys that we've been talking to is um cuz they do some really nice Malvasian. I I think yeah. being here in the city, I'm I'm I want to eventually work with them to make like it's a force carbonated sparkling wine basically the same way Prosecco is. But with the right PSI you can hit just like champagne, where it's not those big fat bubbles. It's like really condensed, constant sure. bubbling things. And I think Malvasia is one of those ones that's real approachable for a lot of new white drinkers because it smells great. It's got sweet flavors without it being a sweet wine. So like the honey and peaches and things like that. Yeah. But the red wines, every single time I have a red wine from down south, I'm liking them more and more as the vines get older, but they're all coming out thin. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like I had Sangiovese that was as light as a Pinot Noir. Actually, if not lighter in one wow. case. And it still tasted great, but it's it's a real unique thing watching a brand new industry bud to see what they're going to do versus these guys at Planeta that have been... How long do you think those vineyards have been around? Not oh. just the vineyards, but like no, the families it, have been yeah, around for exactly. a thousand years. <laughs> right. I mean, it's unbelievable. Even to a point where... And we were talking about this a few episodes ago. I really like... So one of the things I'm really liking more and more because I'm seeing people use it and I want to do it one day is those amphors, those clay pots yeah. to ferment in. Mm -hmm. And it's pulling out such a cool, unique flavor to the wine. And it's coming out of, you know, like Italy, basically, from all old yeah. places that have been doing it forever. And then finally somebody went by and went, wow, that actually tastes way better. Yeah. And now it's creeping out over here. It well, at, at Thomas George in, I guess it was 2010, we worked with a company called Sonoma Cast Stone, which is great concrete manufacturer um, American producers had been up to that point importing concrete eggs I was gonna say for the eggs or those eggs, yeah. yeah and we we helped design four and those were the first four produced in the US and now I mean Sonoma Castone can see a keep lot of stock. eggs now yeah yeah they're killer too I mean it's as porous as an oak barrel so that micro oxygenation occurs that it does in a barrel I mean it's stainless steel tank they're there's no air transfer that occurs. 
so the wines stay very linear. Um, in an oak barrel, that porousness, adding that micro-oxygenation, not oxidization, but oxygenation, um, adds just a fuller, richer mouthfeel to the wine. But also, obviously, in an oak barrel, it's going to impart some wood flavoring, too. Yeah. The concrete is as flavorless as, as stainless, but then as porous as oak. It's this really, really cool mesh of, of, of both worlds. So my, my buddy that got those concrete eggs in Patagonia in Argentina, mm-hmm. I had a long conversation over a few good bottles of wine with him one night. And he was talking about the way the wine actually mixes inside of those concrete eggs. And that to him was the most amazing thing about him is that when he has a barrel, he has to pop the bung off to put the little hockey stick in there and mix yeah. it mix it all up to stir his lees. And he says with those concrete eggs, the lunar cycles... Yeah, actually, yeah, the, the tidal influence actually mm-hmm. rotates the wine inside of those. And he's like, it's the most amazing thing. He's like, I wish I could have like showcased through like a video or through like a some sort of animation what's actually happening inside of these barrels or inside of these tanks because Completely. with with it doesn't happen in a normal tank where the the lunar cycles are actually rotating the wine but in these eggs it's happening exactly it's complete i mean because you during harvest we'd look down get up on top of a ladder look down into the top of of the egg um and i mean if someone hasn't seen one before i mean they're about well, the ones that we had were 490 gallon eggs. So dang, they're not, that big now. Yeah, what's so, that in liters? Yeah, uh, <laughs> sorry, yeah. what's that in drunk yeah. people in America? <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to wine, I don't speak in freedom numbers. I speak in actual right. like, global numbers. We're actually transitioning to Italian gas tanks. <laughs> so How awesome. many gas tanks can you have full of wine? <laughs> right. Like if you tell me gallons about anything, I'm like, I get it. But if you talk about wine, I'm like, I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> That's awesome. I still, I just learned what a hectare was like a month ago because somebody brought it up and I was like, oh, okay, that's what it is. In comparison to acre. Exactly. 2.2-ish? Yeah. Yeah. Ish. Yeah. Ish. 2.23, give or take. Yeah. Yeah. I just like, when it comes to barrels, I'm like, is it a Burgundy or Bordeaux style? Because that gives me 55 or 60, basically. Let's talk about barrels. I'm like, oh yeah, it's 225 liters. People are like, how many gallons is that? I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's enough to get you fucked up. (laughs) Exactly. Like when you buy a bottle of wine, it's not in gallons. Everything's in liters. They're they're 750 milliliter bottles. Right. Seriously, if you ever want to transition America to a metric system, just use booze and weed and everybody will be fine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's perfect. Good point. Um, Ooh, concrete eggs. Nice. Oh, yeah. The spinning, the rotation. Yeah, yeah. On the random topics. And oh, no, we're golden. Yeah, the eggs would be... A, that, the ones that we had were about, I would say, probably 13, 14 feet tall. Um, That's crazy. Do you want me to tell you in meters how tall it was? <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, 13-ish, 14 feet tall, then by uh, probably about five feet wide. So, I mean, decent size. But... On a ladder, looking down into the top of it, you just see the wine turning itself over on top of itself. And yes, certainly because of the the lunar cycle, but it would kind of continuously happen, though. So, I mean, I, I, I personally thought, yes, lunar cycle, but also just the activity of, of fermentation also. The yeah. energy that's released is also helping it turn itself in, in, in the shape of, of the inside of an egg. I mean, it's just a perfect environment for that, though. It's like Chardonnay did a killer in it with Noble Tree, 
had actually a handful of points. I'll bring you guys a couple of bottles too. We did a 50 50 Grenache Blanc and Viognier. The Grenache oh, Blanc. Nice. Yes, please. Grenache Blanc we did in concrete, the Viognier in, in neutral liquid. Super, super cool wine. Very cool. Yeah. See, I love people that are doing experimental stuff. Like, I'm going to age this varietal in an oak barrel, this in a in stainless steel, this in an mm-hmm. egg, and let's do a little blend. And this way you can get the layers in it, too. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the next generation of winemaker and showcasing their talent, I think, is doing stuff like that. For sure. Well, plus it also helps that there's no real rules and regulations to what you can do out here. Like, I don't imagine you could do eggs in France or certain places, you know, just because you have to put them in certain containers and whatnot. My last trip to Protatori, Aldo Vaca had just gotten a wooden egg. He had an oak. That's interesting. Yeah, I'll I'll post a picture. I'll send you some pictures. It was actually one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen crafted, this oak barrel that was in the shape of an egg, like perfectly. (laughs) Yeah. And he spent like 10 grand on it. You ever seen the uh, the crystal barrel? It's a Bordeaux house. It's a crystal barrel. And so it's got obviously looking what they do is they slide staves in and out of it to give it its oak flavoring. And it's like a $80,000 crystal barrel, basically. That's what she said. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. That's, I mean, essentially, that's just a, a neutral barrel that you're adding staves to. I mean, that's. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly a gimmick, but still, everybody's got some weird thing. I'll take two. It's like, you know. <laughs> The barrel's worth more than the wine? Like the empty barrel? The barrel's worth more than the winery almost. (laughs) Sure. Well, I saw something interesting at a winery in uh, Tuscany where he had barrels that they were whole cluster fermenting in the barrels. And it was a new type of barrel. They had been slow toasted. Instead of using, like, uh, they used like an ember Mm -hmm. over a period of a week to toast the barrel instead of like flaming it and charring it. They were the most expensive barrels you could buy. And high-quality French oak barrels that had a pressure gauge on it so that during fermentation it could release a little pressure mm-hmm. without... But whole cluster aged and fermented in the barrel. That's pretty cool. We played around a little bit with popping the heads off of barrels, and I think it was mainly punchins, though, so slightly bigger than two standard barrels, and then doing whole cluster in, in those. The tough part with whole cluster in Sonoma County... Earwigs? It's earwigs. Earwigs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <Exactly>. <laughs> um, They're getting the stems to fully ripen is one thing. And even when someone says anything is whole cluster, I, yes, you, on the sorting table, you know, you look through the clusters and then you de-stem or not, um, you know, and you're sorting through everything. No one's really sorting through stems and ensuring that they're fully ripened, though. And so what we saw mainly in the Russian River Valley, getting the stems to fully ripen wasn't really a thing. I mean, maybe 5% of the stems would be fully ripened. So it would just be really super underripe green stems, and getting them to lignify wouldn't really be a thing that, that even occurred. So you're just adding an off-putting like, like green, a green Like a green bitter tannin. Yeah, exactly. But... Best way to kind of... That's yeah. what I would think would be the flavor profile yeah, I would impart. exactly. And, and it's cool to say that when you're at a restaurant trying to sell the wine you know, to the wine buyer who then ultimately tells his staff to sell it to the table. Like, well, yeah, this is really cool because this is all whole cluster Syrah. comes from this cool climate area. But it's not... I mean, that's just smoke and mirrors at that point. I yeah. mean, it's not... This was really unique. I had never seen anything like it. I was with uh, yeah, I was with Ricky, who used to be with Quench. Yeah, Ricky, yeah, yeah. And then uh, a couple of the Vias people, and all of us were blown away because 
it's hard to explain because to this day, I still have not seen another person using these barrels. Yeah, that's crazy. The guy who also owns this winery is a Swiss billionaire. So he hides billionaire's money probably. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean. He doesn't have to hide it. It's legal in Switzerland. Right. Yeah, money. Exactly. Yeah. He doesn't funnel money out of Switzerland to the Cayman Islands. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's, he's like, you should have no problem selling my wine. It's served in the first class section of all Swiss air flights now. I'm like, well, you got a little influence. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd you call to get cool. that to make that happen? Glad all 27 people that can fly that airline. Your, your salesman definitely did not make that happen. That was right. from, because of you. All right. So let's talk about your uh, noble tree. Is this your wine? Are you? Yep. You, you have vested interest in this. Are yep. you part owners? Yeah, my buddy and I started that. Very cool. Um, again, as a, as a means for cash flow, and so sort of what we. Talked about a little bit earlier where where you mentioned that there's some uh, mountain fruit that's maybe smoke damage that there's bulk available. When we started Noble Tree, we were just looking at bulk wine. Um, I was getting maybe 30 or 40 samples uh, from winebusiness.com yep. a day. Mm-hmm. And like, you know the drill. Yeah, I mean, and getting samples and then coming up with, with blends. My buddy and I just, you know, in our offices, he was... He's a Craigslist and, and internet fiend and finding things. So, I mean, he would find so many great deals and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, getting things in into the office and, and just trying and making blends on our own, driving in the middle of the night, wherever, you know, from Sonoma County down to Paso, picking up 1,000 gallons of this or 500 gallons of that. And on the way back, so we're not, you know, deadheading too much or something, seeing, oh, my God, there's uh, this guy's got uh, 2,000 gallons of whatever it is available. Let's go there. Okay, he'll meet us at 5 a.m. Perfect. We'll roll into town about 4.30. We can hang out and have a coffee while we wait for him. And then just do some barrel sampling in the back of the truck. Make a blend. Okay, this will be great. And and it's like a drug deal. Yeah, it was really... coffee. We're doing some little barrel sampling in the back of a you truck. Got, you got the red exactly. stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. Cool. And then coming up with really good blends that we thought um, over-delivered for the price point. So it was something... Again, at that time, I mean, 2010, 2011, um, wines that were selling were wines that weren't at every grocery store around the country, but wines that restaurants could afford to pour by the glass that weren't at every grocery store. And, and for independent retail sales as well, people didn't want the same things. And that's sort of what was available to everybody was what was everywhere. I mean, the giant houses of things. So we excelled with Noble Tree to the point where within... So from 2010, I guess, until like, I think 2014 was our first vintage of 100% estate fruit. So purchasing inexpensive vineyards that were already planted with, with mature vines. Um, so this is, um, I think this is 2015. Yep. Um, so you, won't, you now have the vineyards now. It's all 100% estate. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, that was you, own, my co- you own the vineyards. Yep. Yeah. Oh, nice. Well, well that was going to be my... Noble my, Tree owns the vineyards. That Noble was going to be my one question was the fact that your first vintages was something you... You're buying barrels exactly. that somebody else had produced, but now you control it all outright. Exactly. And to be honest, that was so smart of you to, to do that going into the recession. Because when the bubble burst, the people that didn't adjust were not a business. I had the fun part of tasting, blending, driving with my buddy, um, who he, I mean, he still does amazing stuff. He's gone now up in, he's up in, uh, 
Washington Walla Walla if you don't forge your own sellers there. I don't. Taylor, he's doing gangbusters up there now, which is awesome. Was he a restaurant guy or was he a winery guy? He was a restaurant guy. Okay. And then uh, uh, with the help of his father, we were able to start Thomas George. And then because of that, then started Noble Tree out of necessity. But you, you guys are restaurant guys. You saw what was going on in society. You saw what yeah. was going on in the restaurant food culture, and you knew to create something that was in demand, where there was a lot of people that were like, no, I got to have my $300 bottle of wine because that's where I have to pay the bills. You're like, that's yeah. good luck paying the bills with that. Oh, completely, completely, completely. I mean, this. I'm, I'm so proud of everything that, that happened with, with Noble Tree. I mean, we wine enthusiasts named us... Value brand of the year in 2017. Nice, congratulations on that. Seven years in, which is incredible. Did you do the first vintage screw top, or did you go cork originally? Cork originally, and it just feedback from so many friends of ours in the restaurant industry. Oh, you actually listened to feedback? Exactly. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> smart. No, I mean, the label <laughs> itself changed too. It was a, a, a off white label, and while we were talking about it. And there's no border on the front. I literally just like drew with a Sharpie a label. And my buddy Jeremy and I were talking about things and like, oh, actually, that's pretty good. And then the color was something he's had in his head forever, like uh, that sort of burnt orange color. It just, it, the label evolved to kind of make it, I don't know, be a cooler looking wine that somebody may want to want to try. But it's not For the s- price point, too. I mean, this is something that you know, you, you'll pick up off the shelf for like twelve ninety nine. This is a hundred percent estate single vineyard no cabernet shit. for twelve ninety nine. Are you kidding me? That's no. a fantastic deal. Yeah. This stuff is fantastic. I would put this against a hundred other wineries in a second. Like if someone's like, "Oh, here's my wine for twenty dollars." Like this, I'd blow it out of the water with this. Yeah. So how much of this do you guys do in a year, case wise? All in is about twelve thousand cases. Sounds like a lot when you say twelve thousand, but really, at the end, of the, when but it comes not. to the wine business, it's just not. It's not. This is. I mean, initially. The thought was, this is, this could blow up. Yeah, I mean, and that is what it is. Wickersham Ranch, such a cool site, too. Um, Where's that at? It's where, you know, Rockpile Appalachian in Sonoma County, kind of the only non-contiguous Appalachian in Sonoma County, where it's it's hillsides or hilltops, and officially Rockpile is only at a certain elevation. So once you hit that elevation, then you're... Your rock pile, but it's literally just a series of, oh, that's of hilltops. Wickersham Ranch is just past that last hilltop, so you can see you can see Fort Ross Sea View from there. You can see Hirsch Vineyards. Uh, you can see Pay. You can see the uh, the the Buddhist Church that's up there. Seen that one? That's right by like Wayfair and yeah. Uh, What's that? Precious Mountain out over yeah, in that area exactly. too. Yeah, you can see all that from right from this vineyard, but there's this sort of wall of earth and inversion layer that comes in from the coast that makes the, I mean, it's Cabernet, Merlot. Um, there's a little bit of Malbec and Cab Franc in the vineyard too. So then is, I, I might've missed it. Is this a hundred percent Cab or are you actually blending some of other stuff in it? It's mostly, I mean like 95% Cab awesome. and then a tiny bit of Merlot. Um, a little bit of, I mean, Little tannin powder, a little mega purple. I heard, yeah, I was gonna say, I heard <laughs> no, if you no. add if you add mega purple and uh, a bunch of white grapes, you could sell a few million cases of this. Exactly. Well, then, and this actually, this is a vineyard um, of you know life and death things. I I had a horrible accident there in fourteen. I mean, I ended up at the bottom. It's a twenty two hundred foot hilltop vineyard. 
<clears throat> Did you jump I, like your gator or something over? I I was in a vehicle that went over, Ugh. and Oof. yeah, it, I was thrown out. Went down a couple hundred yards. But I mean, the bones out of the leg and no shit compound. Yeah, it's ugly, ugly. My buddy had to sit behind me. It took us, I mean, an hour and a half to get out of the vineyard. I'd crawl to my elbows, dragging my body. What vintage did that happen? 15? Uh, that was 14. This is 15. <laughs> right, so. I want to make sure. Here's what blood, I'm tasting. Blood, sweat, tears, and hot snakes in the vineyard. <laughs> exactly. <from> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, no earwig taint, but maybe some compound leg fracture taint. There's a rich Damn, calciumness to, the, uh, to this wine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so where'd you come up with the name Noble Tree? That was my... My partner was looking at things. Yeah. Um, most surprisingly, the name hadn't been taken before. And, and there is actually a tree called a noble tree. And it's like all fruit bearing tree. So yeah. it, yeah, I feel like it's a name somewhere from history or from books, or there's been something. Well, think of all the stuff that has noble in it. Like noble tree is a, isn't it a Christmas tree? Is it a noble tree? Well, there's like a noble fir, which is a noble Christmas fir. Tree. That's what I'm thinking. But yeah, there's okay. actually a thing that's like a noble tree, that's like all bearing fruit tree, thing like some like ancient story. But it it was <laughs> my neighbor's got one of those. It's lemons, limes, grapefruits, and oranges. That's a one cocktail tree. tree. I think yeah, yeah the cocktail it's tree. Perfect. Yeah. It's a perfect tree. <laughs> Literally, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is probably the only state that we get those. Like, I mean, I didn't grow up in New York even hearing no. of something like that. Like, you could have an orange, a lime, a grapefruit, all in the same tree. Exactly. Yeah, same exact tree. It's crazy. I didn't know that was either until somebody, like, we rented a house and they had a, it was a lemon and lime tree because they grafted it together. I was like, that's a thing? Which is amazing. Yeah. But yeah, perfect But we do it with tree. wine anyways. I mean, think about what gets yeah. grafted onto a different stock, rootstock of some type anyway. Sure, sure. I mean, there's people in the, kind of up in the northern Sonoma Coast area. I think like David Hirsch, when he started planting out there, because it was so cool at the time also and, and battered with so many things, he tried everything from... German Riesling rootstock to even like apricot tree rootstock just to get something hardy enough to start growing Pinot Noir. Interesting. Um, yeah, out in the middle of that, just super, super, well, it's not as Arctic blast as it used to be, but yeah. But I wonder if you could do two different grapes on the same rootstock, the same way we were talking about grapes, like lemons and limes being on one tree, like as that rootstock got hardier, maybe have like one shoot one direction be Pinot Noir and another shoot the other direction be Frappato or something. I would say doing your Cherisola de Vittoria. Right. Where, um, where one half of your vine is your Nero, the other half is the Frappato. Yeah. And it's all... I wonder if you that's... pick it together and co-ferment it together or, co- or not co-fermented co-ferment, separately. No, no, co-ferment, co-ferment, together. co-ferment together. Yeah. Yeah, like, that'd be intriguing to see. Pick it all together, ferment it together. Possible. Huh. Guys, a- maybe that might be our idea for the episode. <laughs> I don't know if that's possible, though. Probably not. There's probably I, some I mean, geneticist that'll listen to this later and be like, you guys are fucking retarded. <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad you listened to the market. Not because of that idea, for completely other reasons. Yeah, for completely <laughs> other reasons. <laughs> I'm surprised we haven't gotten more emails and calls where people are like, you guys are idiots. Not yet. <laughs> I'm, keep, wait, I'm waiting for those. <laughs> I keep looking at the four phone lines behind me, though. They're all, right. they're all lighting up. They're all off the hook. And the fax machine just keeps rolling. That's papers. why. That's why I wear overalls. That's that way that uh, everybody goes. Oh, he's no, stupid. Anyway, coveralls. Coveralls. Sorry, coveralls, not overalls. <laughs> Dude, I'll tell you. Like you're, you nailed something with this noble tree wine, though, because from a salesman standpoint, it's the right price point. Mm-hmm. There's so many wines that fall into no man's land for sales. Now, when it comes to retail, if something's seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, it works. But if it's on a restaurant list, when you get to be a $19, $18, or $17 glass of wine, you're a little expensive for a glass of wine in a restaurant. Sure. 
some places could pull it off. Chow could pull it off. Right. Not many places could pull off the $17 glass of Chow ran, used to be wine. able to pull it off. Right. And R.I.P. So then yeah, I was going to say they can't pull anything. So then you, hashtag too soon. You, you, <sighs> 21 years. You make it a bottle pour or bottle mm-hmm. placement. Well, a bottle placement at $35 is kind of a cheap bottle placement and you lose sales. Someone who goes, let me look at your captain's list doesn't gravitate towards the $35 bottle on the captain's list. Right. So being price sensitive and knowing where you're, you need to fall is so important. And you are really nailing the price point on that wine. Quality, label, screw top, and the right price. Love Planeta. One of the problems I always had was they fell into a no man's land. They are kind of an expensive glass port in the United States. Sure. In Italy, it works. And when you're in the airports in Italy, they all pour Planeta. But it's not expensive to get them to Planeta because they don't have to put it on a boat to ship it to New York, put what it on are a you truck. What talking about? The- Italy at Park MGM Las Vegas goes through cases of this by the glass. Yeah, no, I get it. There's there's <laughs> there's there's a home for it. No, I I'm know, talking I about know. the average mom and pop restaurant. Right, right. No, I know. Like the the, the mom and pop restaurant that's pouring a Chianti at eight dollars, it's tough for them to pour a seventeen dollar Sicilian wine by the glass. Sure. Whereas something like this, they could just crush it with that. And I'm right. I'm pointing at Noble Tree because I'm talking about price point. Yeah, hitting the right thing. Like you're doing something right with that brand, and I'm not just trying to like stroke your ego. No, no, no. <laughs> I've been beaten down too much to have an ego about anything. I've had possible producers. <laughs> they're like, no, I have to go from fourteen fifty to fifteen fifty to sixteen fifty to seventeen fifty. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. I, I understand, but now you're gonna lose sales. Exactly. Well, the, the I mean, the other part of that world, like, just consistency. Maybe, maybe work on a five year swing, or or yeah. if you can do a ten year swing, but. The back and forth from, from some places is so crazy, though. So this is, you have the Cabernet Sauvignon. Are you doing other varietals with Noble Tree? Yeah, we have, um, actually, Dave Johnson's uh, at their... Uh, Acatillo? St- no, at Starlight Barbecue. Nice. Uh, the Noble Tree Grenache Blanc Vignet that I said, the Grenache Blanc Very and cool. concrete and uh, Vignet. And, uh, I can see that working with some bacon steak up there. Right. Um, a little Merlot and Zinfandel and Chardonnay. All right, so you have five labels? Yep. Do my addition, right? Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> your favorite five-letter word. Totally. I think, I think the only silent moment in the past however long. Yeah, I just thought about all, that. Wait, wait, we one, all had to count two, one to five. <laughs> that's that's going to be really great as we go on. The only silent moments are when everybody's like, wait, long. We have to do addition. Um, count one plus one. <laughs> They're counting again, one damn it. Plus one plus one. But if there's any producers out there listening, like this is something that's really important that comes from the salesman standpoint yeah, yeah, yeah. that we understand, but a, a, a someone who's a farmer doesn't always get. Exactly. They know what it takes to produce that wine, but to sell that wine in a thousand cases or 10,000 cases or 50,000 cases, mm-hmm. you have to be at a, it's, you're competing with a lot of different things. Well, it, it's tough to get to that price point. I mean, and a lot of that's based on farming costs and, and packaging. This bottle costs a lot different than a lot of other bottles. There's no cork. A little, it's not crazy heavy, punted, no. you know, shaped differently. <laughs> it's not that guts and You don't have embossing. Right, you don't exactly. have embossing on it. Right. So actually, here's an interesting stat that I saw earlier. I want to get your feedback on because you deal with now distributors and wholesalers. I don't. Mm-hmm. 
regular basis. Now, you, you're so. seeing a whole different side of it dealing with the distributors and wholesalers. Right. So in 1995, or since 1995, wineries in the United States have tripled. They've gone from 3,000 to 9,000 wineries since 1995. Import sales have more than doubled in the United States since 1995. But... Distributors have dropped from 3,000 to 1,200 yes. since 1995. So we have three times the amount of wineries, twice the amount of imports, and one-third of the amount of distribution. Mm-hmm. That's a challenge, man. That is a challenge. I mean, it's the secret of how to figure out to stay on the front burner. How, I mean, you've got yeah. four burners, and you need to be on the front <laughs> How does Noble tr- right burner? Noble Trees sits in a portfolio in probably much of the nation with thirty other Sonoma Cabernet Sauvignons. Mm-hmm. Like whoever your distribution per- partner is, they probably have another Sonoma producer. For sure. Or 30 oh, other for, ones. Oh, easily. Easily. So how do you stay ahead of all the rest of them? Besides it's the not, misfits pocket square. Right. <laughs> One, it's not it's not huge production. You know, it, so there's not that issue of, of falling behind on vintages. The other thing that it is right now, but doesn't need to be if it were to grow, is that, but, but it is now, I and mean, this is 100% estate, single vineyard wines. So there's nothing else in that category. There is nothing else in no. that category. I know, I know for a fact there isn't anything else in that category. It's a lot of bulk wine that hits the market. Yeah. Which, not, which, again, there's nothing wrong with that either. That's how this. That's how Noble Tree started. But it's not sustainable long term either. And right. I say that because if I, hey, I can, go to Na- I can go to Sonoma next week, buy some barrels from some guy, sure. put my label on it, Chateau Damiando like, Reserva. <laughs> right. But then next year, I want to get Chateau Damiano Reserva again, mm-hmm. and I got to hope that I got the same guy at the gas station selling barrels out of his, right. you know, the back of his pickup truck. If not, I've got to buy something else. Now, you at least have the vineyard sites, which is nice. Well, but I mean, hopefully, even in this, like the true garagista scenario, you're still producing the same wine because it's you created the first one based on what you liked from the blend of you bought these four random barrels from this person and then you have your blend. So even it might change. It's still, I don't think there's a, there's a, I don't think there's a negative side to that though, but yes, yeah, certainly having a state fruit is what it is. I mean, there's no, it, there's longevity. Yeah. If everything comes back to the vineyard consistency anyway, thing. Yeah. Like if it all comes back to the vineyard, then yeah, having control over the vineyards is, is, is crucial and, and key. You know, our vineyard manager, my best friend, Ulysses, who, we unexpectedly lost this past year. So, um, sorry to cut you off, but what happened? I, I read a couple articles. I, I saw was, that he had passed I away. To ask but that he, earlier, he yeah. was he was really young. Forty nine. Yes, forty nine. Yeah, um, yeah. He had a heart attack. His his father passed away the same way. Um, so and he, I mean, he ten green thumbs. I mean, he was one of the most sought after vineyard oh, yeah. managers in Sonoma. Yeah, if you wanted success as a winery. It's weird to say wanted because I, like, I worked so closely with him for such a long time, and, and specifically, 2013 worked only with him. Like, if you want success in Northern California, you hire Ulysses Valdez to farm your land, or you buy the fruit that that he grows. Just a farmer since day one. I mean, he grew up in Michoacan, Mexico. His father was uh, farming grapes in California and sending money back to the family. 
he, uh, his father passed away. I mean, almost same age, exact same way. So, but every guy should get checked out after 30 years old. The, <clears throat> the one thing they call the widow maker. Well, females should also go checked out too, but we have different genetic makeups. Um, I think it, it mostly affects males though, but it, if it's in your family, you can fix it early on if you get it checked early enough, but that is what it is. But his father passed and he was pulled from school at like six years old to start farming, which he did until um, he was about 10, could make more money closer to Mexico City, moved alone then uh, when he was 10 to Mexico City till he was like 14. Um, learned he could make more money in northern Mexico farming sugarcane. Did that till he was 16. Learned that he could make uh, better money. And all, all the while, I mean, sending money back to his family as one of uh, six kids. Learned about El Norte, uh, Sonoma County, and growing grapes. Moved there when he was 16 years old. And did he, he never actually had his own wine label, but his he name... Did. He did. Okay, he did. Yeah. yeah. But so, I know his name is on a lot of people's wine labels. a lot of people's labels, yeah. But in... in so yeah, so he, he be, ended up becoming a 50-50 partner in his own vineyard management business or in a vineyard management business by the time he was like 19 years old. Um, the Rockpile Appalachian, he planted the majority of that. Um, there's a lot of things obviously on Rockpile, like the Moritzins and everything they've done I mean, since the 1800s, but he planted a lot of the, uh, <clears throat> a lot of the vineyards in the uh, early 90s. So started doing that but I mean, after being a 50-50 partner within I think it's about 12 years um, he was able to buy the company outright and that's what is the Valdez and Sons Vineyard Management Company which everybody would like to work with or, or purchase fruit from whether it's you know Aubert, uh, Arista, William Selliams, Thomas George whatever the case may be. Um, well, just drop one or two names, why don't you? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, Gary Farrell. You know, lots of things. And just okay, nobody. it doesn't matter. Um, well, it says a lot about what he did and yeah. the quality of product he put forward. I mean, the fact that all these well-known vineyards used, I mean, him. Yeah. You know, and his vineyard management systems. Oh, completely. And, and he started producing wine a little bit, a couple thousand cases a year in 07. And that's still ongoing. So 2013, I was able to do a lot of work with him and work with his family. His daughter is now the winemaker. They do a couple thousand cases a year of some pretty killer Pinot, Chard, um, and some killer Zinfandel. It's odd. It was a supremely tragic and a shock to the wine community. And like his daughter called me from the hospital that morning. It was a really rough day, but... I don't know. He's, he's such a personality that like it's he's not even gone. Doesn't it sounds like, like you're gone. still in shock about it though. Yeah, I guess a little bit, but it's just like to know him like he's such an such an amazing personality. Like he's always there. He's just always around. I mean, no matter what, like he's he just, lives in his bottles of wine too. Oh, I say sure. he left a legacy behind with what he did yeah. in the vineyard. Plus, he's got children that obviously can keep that going. Yeah, his wife and kids are absolute rock stars, and so. Vineyard management company still is going great. His son, Ulysses Jr. and Ricardo are doing gangbusters with that part. Um, his daughters, Elizabeth and Angelica, are doing a great job at the winery, and you can still buy his wines. And they're just, I wouldn't say his wines, their wines. I mean, you know, they're, they're amazing. Killing I mean, people. Th there's, one of the things I love about wine is the personal aspect of it. Like, I could drink a bottle of wine from 1983 
And I, as I'm tasting it, I'm thinking about the guy who stared at the grapes in 1983. Yeah. Listening to his Sony Walkman and his tape cassette that he was like going to give his girlfriend the mixtape of, right. <laughs> you know, a little Bell Biv DeVoe or something like that. Yeah. And, and <laughs> hey, I, even I know Bill Bev DeVoe. So like, but that to me is like special. Like, so granted he might be gone, but people are going to enjoy his legacy for decades to come, which is something that's special. Oh, for like, sure. There's not a lot of businesses you can be in and have that happen. Like the guy who worked for the printing company for 30 years, when he passed away, his right. legacy is kind of done. But somebody like Ulysses Valdez, people in 30 years, someone's going to pop a bottle and tell a story about him. Oh, for sure. Which is something <coughs> kind sure. of magical about our business. This yeah. fun thing about wine is, yeah, you can you can always know that, like we always have the talk about the Ravana. Uh, Revena, uh, mm-hmm. the 2001, and the fact that he doesn't have any or whatever, is that other people out there do have it. Right. So even if, you know, you run out of a specific bottle or something, you might randomly hit a stranger one day and it goes, oh, no, I've got that bottle from Ulysses. Yeah, it's, as a matter of fact, it's, you know, yeah, 1999, and it's 30 years later, and it's still a rock star wine. And you'd be like, oh, I knew the people who knew him, and this is what their children are doing now. It just, it, it's true that, like, a legacy can live in a bottle for a long time. And it's not even the bottle that does it. It's the stories you created along the way that you talk about while drinking that bottle. doesn't matter what the year is. The year could be one thing. You know, if you drink a 2017, 40 years from now, you could be like, oh, I remember the fires. But you could have the person who made that and be like, oh, well, he did this. Remember that one time he fell into a hole in a tractor in an aquifer in Italy? Or right. that one time he got really drunk and slid down the roof and broke his ankle or drove off a cliff and had to crawl his way out. Right. Like, yeah, as long as you've got the stories of the guys, it, it does live within that bottle of wine. For sure. That's why we love this business. That's why we love wine. Yeah. Well, I mean, little one of my, things like that. One of my favorite things about wine, and one of the most eye-opening things with wine that I ever experienced was that it is my own personal time machine into whatever place, and I don't ever know before I pull a cork <laughs> what where it's going to take me. And I, I remember the very first time... It happened was a bottle of Beaujolais, and it wasn't, I don't even remember the producer at this point, but my parents used to ship me off to Atlanta, Georgia from Minnesota when I was a kid. I'd be there for the summer. My grandfather, always with every meal, with one fork and a jar of jalapenos, and my grandmother would be, you know, out in the garden doing whatever. (laughs) They had beautiful rose bushes in front of their house. And my grandfather would destroy the bathroom because of all these jalapenos that he <laughs> yeah. would be eating. It's all right. We all we work in Arizona with a bunch of kitchen chefs out right, here. We exactly, know what it's like. Exactly. <laughs> and so I'd, I'd be sitting in the living room doing whatever I was doing, drawing or playing, whatever. I was a little kid. And then... Trying to breathe. Trying to breathe. <laughs> but the humid Georgia weather with the windows <laughs> open, the all my grandmother's rose bushes out front would be blowing in all this intense, <laughs> intense rose water smell mixing in with this sulfuric <laughs> smell in the living room and this first time i had a quintessential bougelet i'm like i'm seven years old at my <laughs> grandparents house this is like this sulfuric <laughs> carbonic maceration rose water oh, this is amazing that's hilarious that's an awesome story yeah <laughs> I'm so glad that a Beaujolais brought you back to a raging shit fest in a bathroom with your grandma's roses. It's, it's, it's funny, but I think every wine person could relate to that story sure. right there because exactly. it's it's flavor profiles, things that transport you back to your childhood. Like exactly. there are there are those those hints of smells that it's not that it keeps. I know 
<laughs> it's not that you like all of a sudden have this like, oh, it smells like this thing. It's, oh, I have this memory of like, there's a very specific plastic smell I get in a couple wines that remind me of my grandma's house growing up like seven, eight years old, the, you know, the plastic on the couches and whatever. But it was also a combination of cat pee and right. like the litter boxes that never got cleaned. I'm like, wow. I, we drank that wine, by the way, recently on a podcast where I sit there and it's like, it smells like my grandma's house. What I meant to say was it smells like cat pee that hasn't been cleaned up in a long time. <laughs> so it's like, yep, yeah, that's a memory I I'm, I cherish, by the way. Like, I really do. But yeah, at the same exactly. time, like, that's a weird smell. <laughs> but that's these these amazing bottles. Yeah. A time machine into a different place. It is like as a, as a kid, you know, they used to put all that stuff in a time capsule and bury it. Um, mm-hmm. At least we did that in our high school. A wine bottle is kind of the same thing, except it gives you... A, you know, more or less happy ending at the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) But like, it makes you feel good. But at the same time, you sit around with your friends and, you know, you're not really, you talk about the wine a little bit, but then you do what we did here and what we'll always do with everybody. You just have conversations about everything you've experienced along the way to get to that point of, you know, this bottle of wine. Sure. For me, it's a song. I mean, it's that song. We've talked about it like... Cindy Lauper song. Yeah, you're listening to Cindy Lauper on the beach with your friends in, you know, 1988 and having fun with my neon bracelets and, you know... <laughs> you guys really partied hard, apparently. Neon bracelets but, and but, Cindy Lauper. But, but you listen to that song 20 years later and it brings you back to that moment and a bottle of wine can do that. Oh, for sure. The and, human olfactory system is amazing. And this was something we talked about on the uh, wine movie episode with Rudy Kay. The guy who was faking the wines. Yeah. Imagine if you had the best wine ever, like Chateau whatever, and it was something that you drank with a very special friend, and it was one of the greatest memories of your life. And 20 years later, you buy that bottle from an auction, and you drink that bottle, and it brings back all those memories. And you just were like, oh my God, this was amazing. And then you found out two weeks later that that was a fake bottle from Rudy. Now, did... You were already recreated those memories. That bottle served its purpose. Right. You paid a lot of money for that bottle, and it served its purpose. But are you bummed because it was a fake bottle, even though it did everything you wanted it to do when you exactly. bought it? You shouldn't be bummed when Millie Vanilli had their gra- <laughs> Millie Vanilli had their Grammys taken back because it wasn't them singing. Retailers allowed people to take their Millie Vanilli albums, return them to the store for money. I was like a kid, I was a little kid. And I'm like, what? It's the same music. doesn't oh, matter who's singing it. Yeah, Why do yeah. you care who's singing it? Michael Jackson can't lean, you know, three feet off the ground forward. Should I be upset that you can't physically do that? No, like his dancing and singing is amazing. No, I said, if, 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 if I had a bottle of amazing Kanubi from 10 years ago, and then I drank, I found that exact bottle from an auction, drank it, and then I just found out it was fake. I'm like, well, I, I still had all that emotion inside of me. From listening to that song. Right. I listen to that Millie Vanilli song. Even though 20 years later I know that it's not the same artist, I still have the same emotion. Exactly. Like it's a it's a unique debate when it comes to that whole fake wine market and the feelings that wines give you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also it's not gonna be the same wine from the day you drank it if it was 2017 and you drank it later in 2025, it's not gonna be the same wine no matter what. Right. You know, like that aging time, it automatically makes it a different wine. So I mean, that's the one thing if you have like a case of it, I guess. But yeah, if you drank a brand spanking new Bordeaux or like we're sitting around drinking Noble Tree and 
It's 20, was that 2015? Yeah, 2015 Noble Tree. Yeah. And this is best ever. And it blows up and it gets huge. And then 12 years from now, we're drinking it. And somebody just bought that bottle, filled it up with something else, but hit all the same things. Like, I'm, so, I'm still super happy. <laughs> so here's the question. How much either Thomas George or Noble Tree inaugural vintages are you sitting on randomly? <clears throat> you got a case or two under the bed? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's some other cool things, too. We had some people over on uh, Saturday night. Trying to rob from Ro- Rob Holder, Roku Core. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, him and I have actually drank more Amaro and Fernet than we've drank wine. Sure. <laughs> That's Rob Holder for you. Exactly. He's been a good buddy for almost like two decades. Um, good person. Yeah. Um, I, I had a 2004 three-liter of Viadere Cabernet. Viader? Yeah. Or Viader. Literally right yeah. that? Yes. <laughs> indeed. I literally just pulled a bottle off the ground. Yeah. 2004 Viader. The only bottle that's sitting on the ground The here. only bottle sitting <laughs> that's down. That's so fun. Not the Dare, because the Dare is only the Cab Franc. Um, this was a yeah. uh, special bottling of uh, uh, 60% Cab Sauv, 40% yeah. part, Cab Part of Viadere. Yeah, exactly. Wow, crazy. That's crazy. That's so Small fun. world. Well, because like, okay, this is <laughs> it's wine. It's what wine does. It's just, look, we just did that with two wines tonight, the Travaglini yeah. and Viadere. Yeah, that's amazing. Oh. That's awesome. So the, Metro, well, hey, talk about, awesome. talk about something else so we can pull it out from exactly. the table. <laughs> okay, everybody. <laughs> uh, did I say hot snakes something yet? better. Did I say hot snakes? <laughs> we can talk about snakes and pull those out from under the table. <laughs> <laughs> all right somebody but, say lottery numbers let's do this right. um, but so i had a three liter that was like okay it's ready it's That's ready to drink crazy. um and it was beautiful it was a beautiful wine but then we started pulling out some other things and some other cool things that i have from from early on at uh, thomas church that was because it was the old davis bynum winery there's just random cases tons of cases i uh, we opened up a uh, 78 davis bynum cab that was, oh, wow. it was cool. I was say, was it a little strange making wine off Davis Bynum? Because you probably had Davis Bynum at... Yeah. Oh, for sure. Chow uh, and Cashmere's. Well, it was cool. He was coming around all the time and giving free advice. So was, uh, Davis Bynum's winemaker for a long time was Gary Farrell. They were coming around giving a lot of free advice. There was really an energy of like a passing of the torch in the Russian River Valley, which was a cool thing. Um, did he retire or what was his? Yes. Yeah, okay. was, yeah, yeah. He um, he was probably at eighty six ish. Eighty. You're talking about Gary Farrell, uh, Davis, Davis Bynum. Bynum. Oh, Davis Bynum. Okay. We used to serve his wine at Olive and Ivy. That's how I. Oh, okay. Was familiar with it, and I'm still close with his daughter Susie, who's got her own wine label, and her two kids also, and they're they're doing their own wine things also. Yeah, it was super cool. It's crazy how small of a world it is in the wine business. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I just never thought it would be this small when I got into it. I just thought that I would never get to know producers and winemakers. And like the way you talk about this, you're like, oh, yeah, I know his daughter, his kids, his family, his friends. Yeah, like, yeah. And when you get to know him, you're like, it's not. Well, that's like the best advice I've ever heard. And probably the best advice anybody could ever give anybody in this industry is just be nice to each other because it's such a small world. And it never burn a bridge in the wine business. Yeah. Don't don't, don't mess drunk. with somebody's wife. Don't talk crap <laughs> about somebody at a different sales rep or whatever the case may be. I mean, because it's it's such a tiny world. We all run in the same circles. Yeah. And when it comes to good producers, there's only so much land out there. 
There's mm-hmm. only so many good growers. There's only so many good salespeople. Mm-hmm. Like, especially, I mean, when it comes to sales, it's a different beast. You're competing. We're talking about the amount of distributors out there, the amount of wineries out there. Like, you're competing in a with a lot of people. Yeah. And to be a good salesman of trying to sell 750 milliliters of grape juice in a bottle. <laughs> right. like, from Italy, by the way. Yeah. Or from anywhere. Like, yeah, it's not widgets. You know. <laughs> it's not the easiest it's thing. Not drugs. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, also, I mean, think about how many wineries I know in Paso Robles, there's 330 registered wineries in Paso, I think, right now. Wow. Imagine trying to be the guy who sells, hey, I'm going to compete. <laughs> like 330. I don't know how many are in Sonoma or Napa, but it's got to probably be more than. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot. Of, and at a price point, you're swimming with a lot of big fish. Yeah. Bitch. Oh, you know, I was going to mention also. Because we mentioned Paso a couple of times, but where I, I do see this sort of connection with, with Bordeaux and Napa and, and, and Burgundy with Sonoma, Paso is the Rhone. Like I it, get it. it could be the Rhone, and it could be, it should be the Rhone someday too. I mean, like get, I mean, that's such killer Grenache and Syrah coming from there. How it really is? How yeah, crazy really is. is it that America has forged its own path? However, we have kind of crafted out these lineations that match Bordeaux in a way. Mm-hmm. You have Bordeaux. Yeah, everything's a remix. Everything's a remix. <laughs> you, Napa Valley has become Bordeaux. Yeah. Sonoma is becoming Burgundy. Yeah. You have uh, the Central Coast, or you have Paso Robles, which is becoming a lot of Grenache, mm-hmm. Syrah, Mavedra. So, but those things work there. Like, uh, yeah. On a I mean, I'm intrigued to see what the... Because well, I feel like the Willamette would have been the one where it was... Burgundy. Would have been the real Burgundy, and Sonoma would have been the universal, like yeah. everything. Sonoma, I think. I mean, Willamette. I mean, where's our champagne? Go north of Burgundy, and we've got champagne. So, which is crazy because the sparkling wines that come out of California are good, but they're definitely much more structured. They just the sparkling wine is Oregon nothing to sp- compare against champagne. Well, no, so but Oregon sparkling is killer, though. Yeah. Like, why? you think the Finger Lakes would have been like a yeah. place for like an all sauce kind so of? So, what's place? the problem? Yeah. Where, where, where are they going wrong? Like, is it marketing? Is it price point? Who? Is it like to, I to, think to do s- sparkling quality? It's sparkling well, in the U.S. It's expensive. So um, at Thomas George, we were making a bit, just a few hundred cases a year doing custom crush, but sparkling, sparkling. So is it Method Champenois? Yep. Where where are you getting the grapes from? Same they're, vineyards, so I mean, state they're, vineyards. They're Pinot so, and Chardonnay producers. So great so, quality well, yeah. So real quick, sorry to interrupt, but let two me two tons per acre. Yeah, but you can use those grapes to make sparkling and just a normal red. You can't really do that in Champagne. It's you make Champagne, right. you're not going to make a Pinot Noir or Chardonnay by itself. Right. You would have to make a sparkling wine in an area that you cannot make anything other than a sparkling wine. Right. So does it justify your cost making? Oh, this super awesome Russian River seventy-five dollar bottle, or we can make a sparkling wine for. I, I mean, can you even hit seventy-five on a sparkling it, wine in America? It's it probably sacrilege to say this. I mean, because I, I have a lot of friends in Oregon, in in wine country in Oregon, but I don't see why that's not that's not our champagne. I think it's the cost. Um, probably, they probably also make it super organic with chicken feed touching it, and they live it hazy, and no, the it, yeast it, still in the bottle with well, the kombucha it, bottom. It goes back so, to the cost. Some it, lady named Mo with dreadlocks <laughs> has to pick the grapes. She gets occasional <laughs> armpit hair in a exactly. bottle. Exactly. Uh, well, but to do it on a grand scale is is expensive. But why? 
and again, this is probably sacrilegious to say, but in Oregon, almost every other year has an off vintage because the fruit can't fully ripen. I mean, it's, it's, it's getting warmer, obviously. So there's that, but it's still such a great, cool climate area for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay that, I mean, pick at 19 bricks and make incredible sparkling wine. Yeah, yes. but when you have baked notes to pay, it's much easier to force carbonate and produce yeah. a product you can put in the market and recuperate your costs right away. Mm-hmm. Versus if you're doing Method Chapinois, you're investing two years of your time period into making this wine. Right. And in doing custom, and you don't do that yourself, you do it custom crush. And so, and, and people that do do it, I did say do do, if, you're, if your juice cost alone is, say, $14 a bottle, which is a high juice cost, um, that's super low yields and expensive farming, but $14 a bottle, that's how you have a $40 bottle of, of Pinot Noir. Um, if you do custom crush for, for sparkling wine, your, your juice cost alone, your base cost probably be a 22 bucks a bottle, 24 bucks a bottle. Then it's going to sell for $75 a bottle you you know, out of the winery. So that's expensive. You don't have to age it for two years. You have to hold yeah. on to it. You have to pay rent. I mean, mm-hmm. we're now you're pushing it back another year. You, I don't know about you, but not a lot of people can just take two years off from life before they get paid. Exactly. And that's where I don't think we've seen a lot of great method Champenois producers putting out product because mm-hmm. it's two years without getting paid. Well, <laughs> like, also yeah, in a, playing devil's advocate, the one thing that America absolutely lacks more than anything else is generational knowledge. We do not have families who are 10, 12 generations deep of making something. Champagne's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. So right. Maybe at one point in time when people were making there, there was a normal winery and a normal brewery and people make a cheese and then this guy took over and then over 100 years they kicked these guys out and they focused this, bought this vineyard, did that. And all of a sudden here we are in 2018 or 19 and the champagne is absolutely killer at $40, $50 a bottle. Right, right. And it took, it took free trade to like knock it down to $30 good product still. So and and being in America, everybody wants to be the next new thing. No, but there's not a lot of tradition. I think that might be the right thing. There's no tradition in America, and when you don't have that, I don't think sometimes you have the ability to recreate the same greatness all the time. So you could be that one amazing Cabernet producer, and then you sell your uh, your estate off to Constellation and one big guy, and then there goes the tradition. It's gone. Yeah. Like your tradition is yeah. now totally gone because now yeah. they're going to make that label into something worth a couple hundred dollars to get the points, and it doesn't matter how it was done. Right. You talk about two hundred years of tradition in France. You're like, oh, it's France. Two hundred years of tradition in America. That's Revolutionary War. Like, yeah. It's, <laughs> there, there California was, wasn't settled. They were speaking like, uh, Spanish in California a long time. I mean, they still are, but. <laughs> We're really it just was Mexico ba- two hundred years we're ago. We're babies. Yeah, Arizona wasn't. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to the global wine making like scheme, like we're infants. Mm-hmm. Dude, there are thirteen generational. There's a there's a family in Italy, in Sicily, maybe Planeto. It doesn't matter who it is, but within those labels, those great 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 grandparents were the person who founded it, and it's the same brick stone mortar. The only yeah. thing that changes, maybe they changed tanks out. Yeah, and it, remodernized yeah. bottling, and maybe added air conditioning, and put deodorant in a room somewhere. Right, <laughs> hopefully, Italy, hopefully. hopefully. <laughs> but you know, yeah, in Oregon, like the year the winery was founded, there were still VHS tapes. 
Whereas there's not yes. crazy monks. Like when you talk about champagne, the yeah. people who make that shit, those are monks dating back to, they drank champagne to survive because they couldn't drink the water. Right. Or drink beer because they couldn't mm-hmm. drink the water. Yeah. We're babies when it comes to the exactly. wine making world. Like we look at it in a very unique perspective. I feel like we look at it as a money thing more than we do a traditional thing sometimes. Everybody's out there. Not everybody. And that's wrong. That's, that's not right to say. People want to absorb somebody to get that money, but the people who are trying are willing to not, they're kind of willing to throw the book out and be like, oh, well, they make Pinot, they make Chard, they make Pinot, they make Chard. I'm going to try something different and I'm going to throw a Gamay out there or uh, maybe a Frappato in a couple random vineyards mm-hmm. and we'll see what happens. And then it doesn't work. And then, sure. well, there goes 10 years of your time. And you know, we'll see what happens. Like I, I told you earlier, I love Viognier and there's, I think there's like two vineyards left of Napa and Viognier. And I love that style. And that sure. it's, I think it'd be great in Napa, but you're going to make your money from cab. So right. there's no point. Like, like, Oh, I sell out of my cab every year, but I'm still sitting on 50 case yeah. of Viognier. Well, Bordeaux, I think Bordeaux, Bordeaux the Viognier. Well, look at this. I mean, clearly Bordeaux did it. Clearly Bordeaux found we're better off red. And so we don't know anything about the white Bordeaux. I mean, we at this table do, but the average American doesn't. So a hundred years from now, when people are drinking Napa Cab, nobody's going to think of like Saw Blanc coming out of Napa Valley. The club member might have one, but there's not going to be a lot of vineyard sites there. 100 years from now or 400 years from now, there's things that we're doing now in every part of our lives, whether it be the wine industry or any industry, we don't even realize we're doing it, but they're going to be looked at 400 years from now, like, oh, they were like this. We, we were the pioneers. We need, to be yeah. more, we need to be more like this. You know, we <laughs> They'll tail this. back on Oak, I imagine, a lot. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I would hope, but you never know. I mean, people might just have more of a love of Oak as this goes on. Yeah. You know, our palates are not the palates of the general public. And sure. that's something we always have to remember. A wine buyer, a salesman, mm-hmm. a winemaker, we all have to remember that our palates are not the people we're selling to. Yeah. My mom is the people we're selling to. That's yeah. the general public. Exactly. You know, that's why I'm, I made it a habit over the last 10 years that I never talk down to anybody when they talk about their wine preference. Because people cringe. My mom cringes. She goes to a restaurant. She goes to a really nice restaurant with me. She's, they're like, oh, what do you want to drink? She's like, oh, you know, Barringer, White Zinfandel. Like, she's like embarrassed to say it because people have also made her feel like a lesser person for saying it. Yeah. But you know what? She's drinking wine. And she's dining out. That's what. That's all we want, right? Yeah. You, me, Sean, all of us. Our goal every single day is to have people drink more wine. And the person who is a Zivendel drinker today might be a Cabernet drinker tomorrow. Yeah, everybody's taste bud changes. You don't want them to feel like shit today, because then maybe they're going to switch. And they're not going to be a. a, a they're not going to be a Cabernet drinker because now they're going to switch to vodka Red Bulls. Or they're going to be a yeah, that's one martini drinker. Yeah. You know, I'd rather embrace somebody that drinks shitty wine. Love you, mom. Um, <laughs> My mom and her Pinot Grigio it, and ice cubes. Yeah. But that person, we could convert. You know what? Your mom could come over here and my mom could be here and we'll get her drinking Abbazia de Novacella's Kerner. You yeah. know, and going, oh my God, this is amazing. Where do I buy this? I had my mom drink that Muga uh, white blend, which is mostly Malvasia, and uh, I can't remember what the other thing was on it. We but, still uh, need to figure out if it's Malvasia or Malvasia. Yeah. Because depending on where you're at in the world, they say different things. Like the Italians will often say Malvasia. 
Like they they add an extra syllable like Malvasia, Malvasia, yeah, Malvasia, yeah. Malvasia, Malvasia. Yeah. yeah, I I think it's like everything eventually gets some different translation. I feel like we have to ask everybody that comes on the show to say it once just to see how they say it because everybody does say it different. Yeah. I mean, it, we're talking about Malvasia versus Malvasia. Yeah. Well, the Italians often accentuate it more. It's uh, Malvasia. Yeah. It's an extra syllable. I say Malvasia. Instead of Malvasia. But here it's Malvasia Blanc or... Yeah, I don't know. So, I mean... I've heard people say Malvasia. Malvasia. Oh, really? Yeah. Get that fake fake rich at Malvasia. (laughs) So, with these wines... So, all right. So, let's finish up on this. So, this Bordeaux... They, people can find it on the retail shelf out here. The mm-hmm. white Bordeaux. Uh, yep. And how do you... This is... Legend. Legend. Yep. Okay. Legend. 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 I like how you hold up your hand when you said that. I know. I did the Italian thing <laughs> on a French wine. So, Legend... Yeah, all, all, the, all three of these. Legend, Planeta, and Noble Tree are all available retail around. Awesome. And so, what price point are we looking at for the white Bordeaux? Uh, the white Bordeaux, is, it comes in under 15 It's a great price point. And then the Planeta... Uh, actually, because that well, AJ's has it for sure, the legend, but that's a little bit more. Um, Planeta is gonna is is higher. It's gonna that's more restaurant wine list. Um, Fifty five, sixty five. Okay, because I think we have like their super introductory thing at AZ Wine. It's like twenty something bucks. I can't remember. I gotta. I, I think, remember that one later. Uh, they make seven or eight different wines. More I mean, than they that. make a couple whites. <clears throat> they make different red blends. They make a hundred percent pure Pinot Nero. I'm sorry, not Pinot Nero, but hundred uh, percent Nero Diablo. An incredible hundred percent Chardonnay. Yeah, a, a killer Fiano. I mean, it, it's a very tough sell in America to sell Sicilian Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. I have pushed That's, that rock up the hill for years, and you know what? I'm going to keep pushing that rock. Yeah. It's, they do a great job. It's oh for sure. It's a tough sell though, and but it's also I mean it's I, th- I think Sicilian Chardonnay. There's a lot of high quality wines. You're competing also on a global market when it comes to Chardonnay, whereas Cherasuola de Vittoria is n- you're not competing against right. Right, right. Napa Valley Cherasuolo and exactly. French Cherasuolo. Exactly. <laughs> like whereas Chardonnay, especially if you're trying to sell it in America, you're competing against Rumbauer. You're competing against Simi, Frogsley. You're competing against all these name brands mm-hmm. that are very well established in the restaurant business here or in the retail business. Yeah, exactly. But something like Cherasuolo, there's more of a there's a lot of options. There's, well, yeah. Or for 100% Nero, 100% Frappato. There's there's cachet. But I'll tell you, Sicilian wines is something that people need to drink more of. Oh my goodness, right? Fucking awesome. Absolutely. And then finally, Noble Tree. Where can we? That's at uh, retail stores as well. Yes, um, you know AZ Wine has had it, but I don't think they have anything right now. And uh, I think we're gonna do something with AJ's though. But it's one that we we made those wines initially just as a great by the glass go to for restaurants. So it is more of a restaurant focused wine. Was there any uh, restaurants you want to plug and just say, hey, this is where you can drink it? Wow. Didn't know if you had anybody off the top of your head. Everybody should always go to Citizen Public House, the Gladly. Yeah. Is it there? 
uh, at Citizen. Awesome. That's um, good to know because I, I eat there. Scoot up. Right. Well, that was the thing is that, but also in general, people should go citizen there. People should, just people should go eat at Vertu. So you, should, Ooh, you I love that place. You should eat at Citizen. All roads lead back to. You should have the chop Peter salad. Peter Kaspersky at Cowboy Chow. Yes. Like, and we could we could draw a map of every restaurant in the valley. Seven degrees of Peter Kaspersky. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> kind of is like oh, especially sure. and not just in the wine business, the restaurant business. Like, he has influenced so many people's careers. I don't insane. think I don't think he realizes it. I tell him a lot. I see him a couple times a week. Yeah, it's he's I told cha- him last Saturday. He's changed a lot of people's lives. Like I always hugely. People ask how you how I got in the wine business, and I'm like, you know what? I went over a hill. I took a left turn. I took a right turn. I met somebody. I took another fork in the road, and that's how I ended up here. Mm-hmm. Peter Kaspersky is that guy at the fork in the road that sends you down a path you never thought you would go down. Mm-hmm. But you look back years later, and you're so thankful that he was the guy at the fork in the road. For sure, that's about the best way I can put it. With for him. sure, you know, and you know him way better than I do because you worked with him. He's one of my best friends. Yeah, he's... and and he's for me selling wine. He was one of the most real people I've ever sold wine to. Yeah, if it wasn't going to work, he didn't bullshit the fact that it wasn't going to work. He right. kind of let you know. I think he had or has or had a reputation of being like. <laughs> angry to <laughs> to sales reps or something like that, but because some people are like afraid of him because don't sugarcoat that. No, shit. exactly. Like, like, he just he's one of the sweetest people I've ever met. That he just says what what it is. Like I I, I don't need this, so please don't bring this to me again. On a salesman side, I will tell you if you own a restaurant or you're working as a buyer. Don't tell me that you're going to let me know if you're going to bring the wines in, even though mentally you are not going to bring the wines exactly. in. You've already made up the mind, but you're too afraid to tell me you're not going to bring them in. So you say, I'll call you tomorrow. I'll let right. you know later. Where Peter will pretty much tell you, these aren't going to work at my restaurant. Yeah. I'll see you next week. Bring me some cool, some other stuff. Like it was, he was right to the point, but you knew where you stood with him. Right. Yeah. Seventh grade prom is over. Like there's, there's no reason to sugarcoat it. No, exactly. <laughs> you're where you're at because of him. In a way, I'm where I'm at because of both well, him, I tell him and that. you. I told him that last week, but he's like, that's not even true. That's, you know. <clears throat> well, yeah, it's that match that lights the lights the fuse that kind of gets it I going. I told you the story of me and Tyler at Mali's. Oh, yeah. And I am where I'm at today because of what I said that day yeah. and how he reacted. If he would have reacted differently, I might not be sitting at this table right now. And he doesn't understand that, but that's the way life Tyler's works. Tyler's such a good dude. Yeah. And so, so buzz, so good. So, so good. We have such an underrated food scene, and all I do is talk about the food scene here in Phoenix yeah. and where it needs to go or where it's going. And yeah, it's just so underrated. We had uh, the owner of Nona. Have you been on? Have you been to Nona yes, before? Yes, yeah. Homemade pasta and sushi at the same restaurant with mezcal yeah. drinks and that place is cool. It took me forever to find it. That's probably the biggest it's problem they hit. have. Yeah, we're talking about that hidden restaurants that are so fantastic. Yeah. How many people have driven by Atlas Bistro a thousand times don't know it's there? Yeah, exactly. How many people drive by Bar Pesh don't yeah. know it's there? I'm super comfortable finding a place. You know, I, I don't feel self-conscious about it. But yeah, no, no, I had a hard time. I was like, what? Like, I'm not in the right place. Like, I'm walking <laughs> around. I'm like, wait a minute. And then, yeah, now I've been in a couple of times. So it's like, yeah. Awesome. Oh, also, actually, you can crush Legend, Bordeaux Blanc, or Noble Tree at, uh, at Cell. I like so we do we another great sell like what a week when it opened yeah, or like one of the first days it opened. Yeah. They do a great job up do a there. Killer job. 
is Tegan working up there too? Yeah. Did he say okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's over there. He's doing gangbusters. I love He's the, awesome dude. I was I, the minister in his wedding a few months ago. <laughs> that's awesome. You're a minister? I am. Oh, that's good to know. I've done a handful of weddings. Guys, so like, you are a renaissance man. <laughs> I'm just some random dude. Make wine, like, sell wine, you know, yeah. officiate weddings. <laughs> you want to have this guy's wine. Hot dog competitions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can raise goats and take care of them back exactly. to life. I'll brew the coffee, get ready for the hot dogs. I feel like they're like bullet points for all this stuff Sean yeah. could do like after this episode. Like that was fantastic. Let's man. wrap this up. Let's uh so the three wines we already talked about, they're pretty amazing. They yeah. can be found all over town here. Exactly. They can be found at a lot of cool retailers and restaurants around mm-hmm. the nation as well. If someone wants to reach out to you or Noble Tree, how do like they reach you? Is there a specific way? Instagram, Twitter, what's the best way to find you guys? Easy rider chateau. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you don't know where I live. <laughs> Thanks for singing that. Yeah. Um, Sean is bad on Instagram and Twitter. Sean um, is bad. And uh, Sean is bad at iCloud for whether it be any wine-related questions or even my other personal, personal stuff, knowing Cora. Um, we've done a handful of things. Vinden 55 did a, a cool kickoff with some of those wines, too. Um which I'll bring you some of those by too. That's just all Ulysses Valdez Vineyard Pinot Noir. I'd like Single to. I'd Pinot. like to see more of what he does and what he did yeah. and experience his legacy through the bottle. Yeah. You oh, know, for sure. I wouldn't mind even doing a whole episode just on Ulysses Valdez and his wines. Well, there's plenty more days ahead of us to do that. Yeah, there is. Well, I think then um, I'll get some wines together and then I want to help his daughter get set up with a local distributor. I'm not sure who yet. Um, but I'll bring her out, and then she's awesome. She's super, super cool. Man, bring her on. Let's yeah. talk to her. Yeah. And you know, if she's around, I mean, you know where I live. Exactly. <laughs> you know, one point six miles from my house. Right. <laughs> Scary. Uh, what is that in kilometers? <laughs> <laughs> in meters. <laughs> Dude, Sean, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thank you, I yeah, really, man. Sean, this really has been fantastic. This. Like, thank you really guys. cool wines. I'll be honest. I was expecting three California wines, and it was a Amazing to have a Bordeaux, have something from Sicily and California all together. Thank yeah. you. I, I really, really loved all of these wines because they were so differently unique in such great ways. I should have I'm expected sure. it with you, though. You're going to bring three different wild cards. It's all good. We'll drink some wine. That's yeah. fun. Thank you it. for not making me wear pants also. I appreciate this. I know. You got to be comfortable around here. I, you know, we I don't am, have a green room anymore. James uh, from Vov uh, destroyed it. <laughs> So. I almost put on a sport coat just to like join you. <laughs> I don't know. It's comfortable. I don't know. I, oh, I got a whole bunch of them. I used to like in the wine business, I always wear sport coats. Like yeah. I, w- I loved wearing like a rock and roll t-shirt and a sport coat. We guys are wearing jeans and I can't, I can't wear jeans. I haven't owned jeans since like sixth or seventh grade. I don't know. I can't wear them. All right. Well, I'm going to transition to coveralls and overalls apparently. <laughs> so. <laughs> awesome, man, dude. Thank awesome. you so That's much great, for coming brothers. on. Thanks right. everybody for listening. Love yeah. you guys. Thanks, Cheers. Sean.